Hello and welcome to another uh, edition of Skeptics and Seekers. David's not with us today. Uh, David Johnson. There's so many Davids now, and even even here in, in this forum, we've got a lot of D's. <laughs> but um, I am here. I am the host today, and I've got Dale, Dan, and, and Teddy with me. And we weren't planning this this show until this week because. David and his group of atheists came on, and I was like, okay, well, if this can't really be a show or a moral extravaganza, as David put it, if there's not the Christian group talking about morality and, and so forth. So I thought it would be wise if both sides – you could hear from both sides, that the audience could make a decision on what they hear and see what's more uh, you know, conforms to reality. So hey, guys. How you doing? Hey, David. Thanks for inviting us. Oh, yeah. Thanks Doing for coming. Doing well. Thanks. Great yeah. to be Doing here. Really good. Thank you for oh. having us. Awesome. Well, Dale, I've been on with you before, and uh, I was just, you know, I was I was surprised that you were, like, so quick to, to answer because I know you just got off a huge debate with, on moral ontology with, with uh, Val. So yeah. ha if you want, you know, I want to kind of frame this show as, you know, a kind of, like, critique you know of of uh of what we've been through so far uh i also want to get into let's give a defense for more realism or let's give our side of the equation you know so that's kind of like where i'm at so I, I just wanted to know dale first i mean what did you think about your debate is there anything any highlights you want to mention so far um, yeah, so, so I really enjoyed the, the discussion with Val. Um, you know, he's a, a very thoughtful guy. I've, I've been uh, debating with him off and on on the, the discussion boards for, you know, a couple of years now. So, so yeah, we're, we were familiar with each other. And, yeah, I think there was a lot of good um, agreement on there between a Christian and an atheist, which was refreshing because a lot of times there's hardly any agreement that you can get so you know in terms of how we identify the the nature of moral truths and that sort of thing um you also kind of mentioned the the is ought um problem that that came up and me and val had uh, some agreement um against david johnson who kind of gave his take and he sort of disagreed there so that was a it was an interesting talk yeah well you know david did admit he has a a lot of delusions of grandeur, but anyways, <laughs> um, Teddy, Teddy to you, you know, you had a yes. very interesting discussion with Darren. I, I could, I got about halfway through it. I had to turn it off for a little bit. I, I got to admit you guys were just, I, I mean, it was, it was a battle. So it, you want to say anything about that? Well, it was, I, I find that sort of thing a lot of fun. I guess it's not to everybody's taste, but, uh, you know, some people like watching, uh, you know, boxing matches or things like that. And some people, you know, don't. So, uh, but I, I enjoyed the talk with him, uh, very much and getting to talk with Matthew again. And, um, I'm always happy to debate Darren or anybody else on, on stuff and I never mind if it uh, if it gets that way yeah it's fun um so the last person I'm getting to is, is you know kind of doing this in order uh, I should have probably went before you Teddy but uh, I had a good time with with David Johnson I mean 
you know, we kind of didn't get anywhere. Uh, I, I told him before, I was like, David, you got to give me some specifics when we're dealing with moral epistemology because the, uh, the, the, the topic is so broad. But Daniel, you had a, a, another debate with Darren as well. Do you want to comment on that at all? Um, yeah, I mean, it was interesting because I don't know if we really engaged too much on the moral realism level. I, I mean, it seemed like we kind of just defined things a little bit differently. And then we're like, okay, well, definitions be definitions. And then we can just go go move on. But then he basically went into um, kind of attacking the Bible. <laughs> and that's mainly <laughs> what our conversation was about, I guess. Yeah, yeah and I don't, I don't think it, by attacking the Bible you can prove whether moral realism is true or not. But, um, yeah, so... That, yeah, it was definitely an interesting discussion. Everybody, I listened to, to all of them. And the, the one I want to focus on today is a critique of the debate that – or not the debate, but the discussion the atheists had in presenting their moral argument. So, I mean, anybody can jump in here. This is a conversation. We're all Christians, and we can handle each other. So anybody that wants to jump in on this debate, is there anything in that, that our discussion that stood out to you? Which, Not all at once. <laughs> which, uh, which discussion? This is the three atheists one? Yes, the three atheists. Okay. Um, yeah, I can't. I can't. I, my mind just went blank. If, maybe if somebody else wants to speak and then I'll remember something that came up in that. Any, anybody else? Well, I didn't get. I heard a little bit of it, but I didn't get very far into it and um and unfortunately i haven't had a chance to listen to all of the debates in full um i think i've heard some of all of them but uh not not all of them and that one because it because it was uh because there wasn't an opposing opinion on there i um I, you know that wasn't the one that i was most eager to listen to i, I love debates best Right on, right on. Were, so, were, they, were they disagreeing yeah. much with each well, other? There was some, there was some disagreement there. Uh, you know, I, I think David kind of did a good job saying that he liked his his version better than Darren's, and, and Darren yeah. just laughed. But uh, there was there was some disagreement there. But it, where I want to focus on is they gave a a naturalistic uh, uh, argument for. Uh, morality and a lot of it's based on socio-cultural uh evolution mm -hmm. so dale or, or let me go to daniel at first did you listen to it dan were you able to to listen to that one i listened to the beginning of it i think we're all like hey we just listened to the beginning of a lot of these <laughs> podcasts but yeah hey See, David, you got to, like, stop the two-hour podcast because people don't engage for two hours, it seems. <laughs> oh, no, no. Oh, hey, I, I'm all for the four-hour ones. It's Whoa. Just, I, I just... I just didn't have time. I just... Because we had, you know, a number of them together and just with my uncle's health situation stuff. I plan on going back to listen to them but That's true. Uh, oh no don't don't ever make them shorter <laughs> because i mean there is so much to talk about a lot of times you know we have these four hour uh 
talks and it, it's well and, and usually there are several people and so it it takes more time to uh to discuss something in a in a deeper way so i love it i'm david uh, keep keep up those long ones that's, that's what true. i'm sticking my head on <laughs> So what you guys don't know is David's in the background, so I can see his Skype face in the background. So whenever I talk to him, he can hear me. So David, you're all, your uh, guests here say that keep the longer discussions going. I only say that because my, my shows are only an hour long. <laughs> so, but, uh, I did listen to all of Teddy and Darren's, but it took did take me like I think four different sessions of listening to finish it. <laughs> but I did come back to it and listen to the entire thing. So I, I think I got an advantage over most because I have a 62-mile trek to work. So I just plug Ooh. in and I listen to them on the way way to work. So And then on my way home sometimes. And I got to admit, sometimes I got to turn them off on the way and put some music on because I get a little tired. But that's only because I wake up at 3.50 in the morning to go to work. But Ouch. anyways, David, you got approval for doing these long podcasts that I've criticized you on before. <laughs> so moving on, the guys gave a naturalistic explanation. And Dale, let's get your take on naturalistic explanations for moral realism. Yeah, I think, yeah, I think so. I was just about to say that that is something that the, the three of them, uh, from what I remember, they, they did agree on. Um, so in, in terms of meta ethical positions, it, it's important to note, you know, just a lay of the land, the three atheists there did, they are technically speaking, objectivists in terms of the cognitivist theories um, of, of, you know, moral truths and how we define them that they, they would just be ethical naturalists, where us as Christians would be ethical non-naturalists. Um, so, yeah, I think when you're evaluating, you know, eth ethical naturalism bases ethics on objective moral facts, namely human well-being and flourishing or whatever it is through those evolutionary mechanisms. But I think there are fundamentally two problems with ethical naturalism. So the, f the first is that famous is-ought problem. You, you can't get an ought out of natural naturalistic facts alone and that sort of thing. You, you don't get this normative or prescriptive ought in terms of the goodness of doing something. Um, and the other, the other problem that seems to come up uh, according to ethicists is that whatever you define, uh, you know, whatever natural property you try to say, well, that's it. This, this is identifies moral versus immoral or something like that. Um, really the moral properties can't be reduced to that natural property. Sometimes we can identify the natural property as present, but it's it's still not moral um, or vice versa. So those are sort of the two main problems with ethical naturalism as I see it. Yeah. Uh, Daniel, do you have anything you'd like to add to that? You had a pretty interesting debate over there, so I'm, I'm pretty sure you got something to say on that. Yeah, I wouldn't characterize myself as um, a naturalist, obviously, but I do actually have, um, I mean, I, I agree with a lot of naturalist positions. So like, ultimately I don't, I wouldn't say, oh, morality is determined by, you know, psychological or whatever. Well, oh, actually I would say actually there are a lot of, uh, cultural and naturalistic reasons that create human morality. Right. But I do think at certain point that was God's intervention, God's revelation, primarily through scripture, through Jesus, that like introduced 
this type of morality, but that the, our human morality without that is complete. I think it is completely shaped by natural, by culture, primarily by culture. Right. So I can see how um, atheists or naturalists, they think that, you know, um, human, human, morality is primarily comes out of your brain and that type of thing because i do think it kind of does it comes out of your brain but i my from my perspective i think god kind of intervenes and works through that but without like an intervention from jesus or without an intervention from god i think that their morality would naturally kind what would i guess i shouldn't use the word naturally right (laughs) but would um would generally follow along the lines of kind of what they're saying, except I don't think it would have the same direction necessarily. But you could get certain moral things out of your own, I think, um, from an evolutionary standpoint or certain things, but a very basic level is what I would say. So, for example, and I think scripture teaches this too. So I think um, some of the things like in my debate with Darren, he would argue like, oh, there's a basic sense of fairness. And I would agree with that, actually, even without um, Jesus or God inter- um without the Bible. I think human beings would have a very basic sense of fairness, but I think it's pretty limited. I think the sense of fairness is limited to your own tribe. And to get the sense of fairness where it says, hey, I want to any human being that I don't even know, I'm going to have a sense of fairness towards that person. Or uh, that is, uh, I think, an otherworldly type of morality that I don't think can come from um, just naturalistic processes. But I do think that the basic sense of fairness does come from naturalistic processes. Okay. Well, you you know, and and guys, don't feel like you have to not push back. I mean, we can challenge each other as well. Uh, This is all of our discussion. So uh, just because I'm kind of moderating it doesn't mean that you guys can't just jump in and push back. Fair enough. I, I, uh, D- Daniel, do you mind if I just ask a question? Because I, I did hear you yeah, yeah. Uh, mention that in, in your show with Darren. And um, I think everyone did. Uh, David Russell mentioned this and Teddy. So I, I see what you're saying is sort of more akin to moral epistemology. You're, you're sort of answering the question of how we come to knowledge, moral knowledge. Oh, okay. Yeah, maybe I was confusing that a little bit. Okay. All right, cool. Yeah, I just wanted to clarify. So, But you do see the ultimate grounding of moral morals themselves as being objectively uh grounded in in god or something like that right yeah yeah maybe it's because i yeah again i didn't listen to the full uh podcast of the when they they talked um so maybe are were they making an ontological argument as opposed to epistemological argument um so i i well, I don't, I don't know, because it was so mixed up. I, I don't know what your topic with Darren, Darren was, but yeah, like um, my topic that was on moral ontology. So, I, yeah, that's why. Oh, I was, I, I, yeah, yeah, that's probably <laughs> we're being influenced by our own conversations. <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, Teddy, Teddy, you got a uh, an opinion on this? Well, um, I. I think that the only way to have a, a standard, you know, which I call objective morals, um, is if it's grounded in something to where it, that's that's what the rule is. And I think that if you don't believe in God, then 
it's all just a matter of opinion, secular morals, secular ethics that are just, you know, derived from secular sources are, are just one person's opinion over the other person's opinion. And when you get into that situation, when two people disagree, might makes right. And to me, the most important thing is what is it that can make the most powerful human being on earth bend their knee and submit their own will to do something uh, it, for something that they think is the standard uh, that they should do. You know, so going from the is to the ought, what makes someone who is all powerful so they don't have to rely upon being nice to others in the hopes that others will be nice to them because they're the most powerful person on earth or maybe one of the few uh, who are the most powerful. Uh, so they don't really need um, other people. So uh, to me, the only time you get someone who doesn't need anybody else to do that is when there is someone above Above them who can enforce what the right rule is and if a person does not obey it there's punishment and I think that in today's society so many um, people religious people and Christians they are more concerned about drawing people into their church or into the faith, and, I, and I'm sure it's a combination of the two. They're so squeamish in this um, super politically correct culture we have now come into, um, and, and it just keeps getting worse <laughs> by the year uh, in terms of people's sensitivities. And so they shy away, I think, from just saying it like it is. And, and, and the truth is, and that was one of the biggest issues that I had in my debate with Darren, he was saying that punishment doesn't work. And, and that to me is absurd. Of course it works. And, you know, then you, and it depends on how strict the punishment is. You know, if you lock somebody in, in prison for the rest of their lives. Well, you know what? You don't have a problem with them anymore. <laughs> so, so my point is punishment does work. And, and I, I'm certain that that is why that is a feature of the Bible. God, God didn't throw out his rules as suggestions. He said, here are the rules. And there's the carrot and there's the stick. You can have, I'm giving you free will and you can choose either um, the greatest reward you can ever imagine or <laughs> the worst punishment. Now, you know, there are debates over what hell is, but but my point is, is that he gives those two contrasts. And, it, and to me, I think he makes the contrast so clear so that it should be obvious which way to go. But 
you know, but that's free will. And obviously there are atheists who choose not to. So, yeah, Teddy, you know what I thought was really interesting was that Darren kept pressing you to back up your assertions. But when it came for him to back up his assertions, like when you challenged him on the punishment issue, he told everybody just to go and Google it. You know, like I, oh, yeah. I if I Google stuff like that, I'm going to find uh, tons of articles and and things like that. So I don't know, maybe Darren could in the future, you know, provide us with his sources in like text form at the end of the debate or something. But, uh, yeah, I noticed that that he would ask you to prove. And, you know, a lot of them asked. Uh, and I think they had an agreement on this to, you know prove our assertions. And when I'm looking at the natural moral argument, you know, our uh, argument from uh, naturalism, I think that that also assumes atheism is true, right? Right, right. And, you know, one of the problems with Darren is that, you know, he he holds others to one standard and, you know, he's usually big on, Oh, that's a fallacy. And he was engaging in, in lots of different fallacies. Like we would be discussing one thing and then he would turn the argument to twist it, uh, basically straw manning my argument and, and sometimes just totally changing the argument completely. And, and I'm like, you know, uh, but, you know, and the, the whole thing that he kept bringing up with the neuroscientist, uh, with the whole thing, oh, morality, we can change it with magnets. I Googled that and, and found an article to see what he was talking about. And that that does not change our morality. The magnets are impairing a part of the brain's function. So, you know, kind of like if you chop off somebody's arm, well, that may kind of impair what they can do physically. So, uh, and, and a lot of those neuroscience, uh, the, the studies with the whole mirroring thing that he was bringing up, those are based on very small studies with, you know, small sample sizes they deal with correlations, not causations. You don't know what comes first, the chicken or the egg. They're, they're, they don't really tell us anything. Uh, I mean, the mirror, and actually with the whole mirroring thing, when I was looking it up, I mean, because I knew, generally speaking, what that means, but to see what he was getting at, uh, there, there, it's, it's very controversial, and um, many People say that all, all we really know about mirroring is that is how humans um, and sometimes even animals possibly, but especially humans, we can learn by seeing other people do things. So that's really the crux of what mirroring is. That's not, as Darren claims, the source of empathy. So, you know, I... I David, one of these days we may need to do a big uh, debate with uh, Darren on the whole uh, business of the neuroscience and all of that stuff because he's all into that. And um, But I, I just think that it's a disaster when you try to base morals on, um, on evolution because evolution is all about survival of the fittest. So 
the morals that would naturally derive from that is kill everybody that's weaker than you. There's nothing in evolution that says protect those who are weak, who are vulnerable. That is something that is the beauty of Christianity and many other religions. And it's not to say that an atheist can't uh, have those good behaviors, but you know what? I think that is probably a case of mirroring where they are learning from the religious. And many of the atheists were brought up in Christian uh, families. And so they had their their moral upbringing brought up uh, with those good Christian, Judeo-Christian morals. And, um, and so, you know, they're, they're trying to give credit for their morals to something other than what I think really has credit. In. And with people that grew up, like, like Darren, he grew up in an atheist family, as he's told us before. And, um, you know, there's peer pressure to behave a certain way. So if you've got a bunch, if you're around, you know, in Western society, you're around a bunch of Christians. And so if, if you start behaving badly, you'll probably find yourself in prison or not with very many friends because many of our laws are based on the Ten Commandments. And so there are all sorts of pressures on atheists to behave in that Judeo-Christian way, yet they think they're just kind of coming up with it all on their own. Yeah, yeah. One one thing, if I if you don't mind me jumping in there, um, David. But um, oh, any any man. Cool. All right. Um, yeah, I noticed. I I also felt the same about. So I I've had this issue with with Darren going back a long time, but the generalizing it to to atheists or not ethical naturalists and that sort of thing. There is this issue that I find where they'll point to Christians and they'll say, "Well, you guys aren't proving your claims," but they they just assert things and they never make the effort to really connect the dots. And that's what I found with, with Darren, you know, like, thank, thank you, Teddy, for doing the research on the magnets thing. I, I remember that that was refuted back in 2008. It was in a mentalist episode um, where they refuted that, that notion. Um, so, and, and also um, his issue of uh, the punishment or something. So he based that, well, there's lower, look, there's stats that says there's lower crime stats in the Scandinavian country versus America. And then he, he makes this wild leap and says, well, therefore, that's because uh, the U.S. doesn't treat its criminals as human beings, whereas these guys do or something. So, I, yeah, I, I thought Teddy did an excellent job of, of kind of refuting that as a criminal lawyer, someone who actually works in the field and that sort of thing. Um, but, but, yeah, I have one question for you, Teddy, if you don't mind. Certainly. Um, cool. All right. So. In terms of punishment, so I, I actually did a show with um, David Smalley on the atonement, mm-hmm. and in that I was presenting sort of uh, two perspectives from the philosophy of law in terms of what justifies punishment. So there's the retributionist perspective, where it's it's good in and of itself to punish a, a wrongdoer type thing, um, versus a consequentialist type view, where it's the justification for punishing someone is based on the beneficial consequences that are obtained, like reforming the character of the criminal, re- reforming the character of the victims, you know, quarantining, deterrence, stuff like that. Um, so I just wanted to ask you, like, where, 
you're a lawyer, so like, where where do you stand on in terms of the justification for punishing out of curiosity? I I think it's a combination of the two, um, and I think we get a degree of that um, from God, you know. And I don't know that I'm saying that God is trying to get retribution against anyone, but. Uh, for example, God is going to judge us one day. Well, I, I envision that, you know, when I hear judgment, that there's got to be some sort of consequence for that. And to have justice, because it's not just about making people better and reforming the uh the person that did wrong, that is a part of it because we do want to show grace to people. We want to show forgiveness. That's what we're taught to do. And that's what we should do. Um, But it's like what I see at sentencing hearings. And there are a couple of judges that I have a tremendous amount of respect for. And the way that I describe them in terms of how they end up, you know, because some judges, you know, tend to be a lot harder on people with sentences. Some judges tend to be on the more lenient side. And the judges that I really have a lot of respect for are the ones that look at every case on a case-by-case basis. They look at the facts. They look at what the attorneys present at the sentencing hearing to um, get a full sense of what was going on in the person's head to see if there is remorse. That is a big, big component of whether one shows grace or whether maybe one has a bit of that retribution going on. You know, like if somebody thinks it's okay to chop off somebody's hand for fun, well, you know what? Maybe they need to get a taste of that so so that they can then learn to empathize. Um, and so uh, because there is nothing like having a dose of your own medicine to start getting someone to seeing another person's point of view in terms of what it feels like to be victimized. So um, the judges that I respect the most, they... They will, with the people that deserve a second chance, they give it to them. And the people that don't, they don't give it to them and they throw the book at them. And to me, that is, that is the right thing to do. That is, and, and so then the victim may say, well, wait a minute, you just gave this person probation. How is that justice for me where they stole, you know, all this money for me that I I spent hours and hours of my life working to earn that money? You know, they're stealing my labor from me. And, you know, how is that justice? And, you know, and and that's where it's a balancing act. And people who have uh, these ideas that everything is black and white in terms of, um, punishment or right and wrong. Uh, You know, Dale, you and I have had these conversations how sometimes you have two rights 
that clash kind of, you know, the perfect example, the, the classic example, you know, Nazi Germany, the uh, an SS uh, officer is knocking on the door. You know, do you have, are you hiding any Jews? Do you have any Jews in this house? And you lie. And it's like, you know, sometimes you have to choose the, the lesser of two evils. Um, and, and sometimes, it, and I know Dale, you generally like to see it as the lesser of two evils, but I, I don't know, something always deep inside me. I think there is something right. And, 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 you know, I guess that probably is in disagreement with what, but the Bible says, I'm, I'm not sure. But if I'm if I could, my person, uh-huh. T- Teddy, if I could jump jump in here, I think sure. that uh, I, I don't think Dale's a moral universalist. Are you, Dale? Um, it depends. So, so yeah, You're not an absolutist, right? Um, so, so again, so it, it depends what you mean by it. So, so Teddy was kind of hinting when when we believe in moral absolutes. Yes, I, I would say that. Morals are universalizable; they're exceptionless. Um, but when when we talk about well, what do you mean by their absolute? So there, I think you're saying you would be against an unqualified absolute, where all moral rules are equally weighty. That you know, there's there's never a time you can't lie to save a life or something like that. Um, but there are other forms of absolutism. So Teddy was hinting. I, I would take, for example, a conflicting absolutism perspective. So I would lie to save the life because there's no choice, but I would still say, well, I'm still sinning when I lie to save that life. Um, it's just I'm doing the lesser of two evils and we live in a fallen world. So I, I need to to do the lesser sin in order to, to achieve the greater end. Whereas Teddy is taking a, a graded absolutism approach, which is saying, no, it, it's actually good. I do. I think it's honestly, I think, for example, uh, especially in the the Nazi example, I think there is something so righteous about lying to an SS officer in that situation. I think and maybe I'm wrong, but to me, God would be so uh, just proud of me, smiling at me, uh, you know, that that would be doing what God uh, wants because the object is to save a life. And, and especially if it's under threat of my own life and my family's life uh, to me, but, you know, I may be wrong. And so sometimes you know, we are all sinners. We are not always going to have the high uh, standards and opinions that God does. And I am willing to submit to what God God says is the right thing, but that doesn't mean that my natural opinion will be the same. So, but my natural opinion is that that's a, a, just a fantastic thing to do to lie to to protect a life to someone, to lie to someone that's evil, that's trying to kill somebody. Uh, it's, it's not just yeah. the lesser of the two evils. It's righteous. Do you mind, do you mind if I ask uh, David Russell and, and Dan, like what, what's your opinions on, on moral absolutism there? I, I'm more of a, a, I believe in objective moral values. Uh, mm-hmm. I guess I would be 
I, I, I kind of let me just put it in a simple way in saying that I think that in a given, you know, morality is a rational enterprise, right? So I think that, you know, every part of the math equation has to be there for the right answer. So, you know, there might be certain variables that determine what the correct action is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. I, I would kind of, I would probably more agree with that too. I don't think I'm, I'm generally not an absolutist, I would say. I would say I'm, I am more of like a moral universalist, but even that, it just really depends on like the, how, how um, you get into the definitions and all that. Um, I'm not as, because st- because I see scripture less in terms of like, I don't think the the law code aspect of it is the primary aspect of scripture, not, and I also don't think that that's the primary aspect that God's trying to communicate to us. So while that aspect definitely exists and is that definitely there, I don't like to like get really firm in a lot of those um those definitions because. The way that scripture defines it, scripture doesn't define them that way. They don't use those like um, metaphysical or philosophical language to talk about morals, right? So when we apply our metaphysical or our our philosophical language like absolutism, universalism on top of scripture, I think it sometimes boxes scripture in. And I don't like to do that. So I would rather use the language of scripture to kind of describe how I I perceived morals but if you were to put me into a category i'd probably be more of a universalist as opposed to an absolutist so i'm confused so in terms of am i the only one that here that thinks that uh i mean yes lying is generally bad but in certain situations when two uh, morals are colliding head to head. Do you think that in certain situations that lying cannot just be the lesser evil and that one is still sinning, but that it can actually be a positive, like in the in the you know Nazi situation? Am I the only one that thinks that it's no, I would probably not necessarily a sin. I would probably agree with you on that, but I wouldn't char- characterize it as, hey, that means I'm a graded absolutist or something like that. That's all I'm saying, right? Mm-hmm. I-, I would say, hey, let's look at the story. Let's look at what happened. How did God do things? And, oh, man, Rahab, she lied in to, to her people, and God said that was good, right? So if that happened, then, you know, I guess it must be good in certain situations. That's I would put it, I would not, I would try to avoid, like, making, putting philosophical or or certain language on top of that, you know what I'm saying, to try to extrapolate all, all these principles based on one event, right? But I would say, hey, that's what the story says, so I think that we got to follow that story, you know? And you know what, I, it's something that just popped into my head, is, you know, the whole idea, you know, when Jesus was being denied, one could argue that, well, you know, our body, it's, you know, it's, the, it's our temple, it's the God's temple, we got to preserve our body, we have a right to self-defense, he felt that if uh, it was Judas, that if he told where uh, Jesus was, am I getting my people wrong with Peter and uh, Judas? But when when they were betraying Jesus, you know, they were committing a wrong 
there, but then, uh, you know, one could argue they were engaged in self-defense. And so the the greater good would have been to st- stick up for Jesus, you know, and in that case, the self-defense thing falls away, but the, the, the purpose was bad. And so I would say that was definitely in the sin category, but I'm just saying, you know, there are uh, frequently situations where uh, morals, positive morals in terms of doing good, uh, where they compete with one another, for example, loyalty and, um, and, t- and telling the truth. So what happens when you have a good friend, you know, that you uh, hopefully are loyal to? Um, but let's say they don't act nice sometimes to people. And, you know, if you're asked about them to give your opinion of them, you, you give a truthful opinion and say, well, yeah, this is my good friend. And, but yeah, you know, sometimes the behavior is not always the best. Is it more important to tell the truth or, or to show loyalty? Well, to me, it's more important to, to tell the truth in that situation. But, you know, loyalty is, is a nice moral. And I don't know, how does God fall on loyalty? I don't know that that's necessarily one of those Christian morals, but in terms of just at least ethics, human, you know, secular ethics, um, you know, we tend to place a value on morals that to me, loyalty, uh, it's a very important thing to me to be loyal to people that I care about, but I will only go so far. Um, And that doesn't, just because I may break with them on one or two issues doesn't mean that I dismiss them as people or I'm not friends with them anymore, but I'm not going to, um, you know, try to justify bad behavior. Yeah. Yeah. I think that scripture definitely teaches loyalty. I mean, um, it, it may call it faithfulness. <laughs> it uses different words in language sometimes and loyalty might be our word. Especially because it's like, oh, it has these implications of um, the the gang gang loyalty or something like that. Obviously, we're not talking about that, but I think Scripture definitely teaches faithfulness, and you know, the Hebrew word chesed, right, which is often translated as like, you know, loving kindness, has a huge loyalty component, right? And faithfulness among friends or just to God? Well, God's faithfulness to us which I think mm-hmm. he would like us to extend because mm-hmm. that's his type of love, right? So I think he wants us to actually extend that to, especially to believers, but even to even to beyond that, you know? So mm-hmm. that, 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 at least that's how I would take it because, um, I mean, his love endures forever, right? And just right. Jesus, Jesus is in, or him sending Jesus to intervene, it just shows his long-term always loving no matter what, right? And mm-hmm. so I think he wants us to extend that to other people, too. Well, and he is the paradigm. So that would make sense that uh, we do our best to emulate him as much as we can. Uh, D- Dan, do you mind if I on the this is this will be my last question about this uh, principle thing. So um, but adding in the scriptural element, I want to get your take. So so my reason for uh taking a conflicting absolutist position um you know what why i would see lying to save a life as as being evil 
comes down to scripture, believe it or not. It, there's a, a scripture that says God can't lie. It's, it's not even possible for him to lie. Um, so this, this kind of says to me, well, that's because it would be a sin to lie, no matter what greater goods come about for that. So, um, yeah, there, there's two interpretations that I can see of that. Either it's my interpretation because it, it's, it's always a sin to lie, um, or it could be something specific to the situation. Well, it, it's, it would be immoral for God to lie or something, but humans, it, it's good to lie in some circumstances or something. But yeah, like what, what's your take of a verse like that then? Well, I would say, first of all, I the way I take it is a lot of the absolute statements in Scripture, um, we have to I, I take them in con, as contextually as possible, right? So I, um, I don't remember exactly where where's that that Scripture from? Do you know where? Oh goodness, God cannot lie. You're gonna test me on the spot. Uh, <laughs> well, I don't it's know. It's in James. Either, so. It's in James. I know that. Is okay, it God? James. Okay, so usually I would take all of those statements, especially – I'll try to take them contextually as, poss- as contextually as possible, right? Why is James saying that God cannot lie, you know? Or And I, I'd have to study it. I, I obviously don't even know where the, it comes from, so I haven't studied it, right? So – but I would say that a lot of those statements are not necessarily as absolute as we read them. In the scripture because they are contextual so an example of this is you know in in i think malachi says god cannot god does not change and then you know in exodus it says god changes his mind right so they those apparent there's apparent contradiction there right but within the context of that scripture it's not really necessarily trying to make these um, um metaphysical claims about who god is Right. So I, I, I think most Christ, a lot of Christians do read like Malachi and say, oh, God does not change and say, oh, that's a metaphysical claim of who God is. And it may or may not be. But I think a lot of our metaphysical, the way we see God in a metaphysical sense is a conjecture based on our own logic, human logic. Right. So we go, oh, God cannot change. And he can change. That's a logical contradiction. That's, but I, I would argue that's using our human logic. I am. I would say, scripture says both, so we can just take both. You know. So some. So but again, I haven't studied the James quote exactly, so I would, I can't say specifically for that one. But I would say in general. That could possibly mean all the things that you said it does, and it may, maybe it doesn't, you know. And, and it really depends on that uh, reading the context of that particular scripture of whether or not he, it's m- more of a metaphysical claim or is more con- more situational. But even then, I don't. I would hesitate to go to the metaphysical scripture generally, right? Um, not that it, there is no metaphysical. Not that we can't say I think that this is what God is. Those lightly is what I would say, and I wouldn't stake my claim. I wouldn't just. I would never say, okay, like I may be with you. Actually, I may be with like you know. I think lying is generally good. like that's how I would just say it. it's like oh my, I, it's very difficult for me to think of, but I'm, I'll allow a possibility maybe just because I don't want to go to the meta just to the metaphysical always with scripture. That's how I would say. It. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Okay. Yeah, can well, I can I throw 
some fly in the ointment? Yeah, can, yeah. Ointment? You know what? Yeah, can we bring it back though? We can get into this stuff again a little bit more later down on, on the road, but I, I think we went a little far foot <laughs> when, when it comes to uh, you know critiquing the naturalistic argument. Um, I think the atheist, uh, you know, has to realize that we start from a position that God is real, right? So that, you know, God exists. We believe that God exists. So it's likely that he would want us to have fundamentally correct moral beliefs. And so would either guide the evolutionary process to produce such beliefs or else instill them in us some way. What do you guys think about that? Yeah, I think, I mean, the presupposition of God's existence, it just has to be there, right? (laughs) So, um... I think for anything Christian to even make sense, it has to be there. So I, I do hear a lot of the arguments that they were making and, and against, you know, um, a Christian like uh, universalism or those type of things. It's just it basically comes down to it doesn't make sense to me. <laughs> and I hate to say this, but I'm not and I'm not, I don't want to attack them or anything like that. It's not that's not my point, but it's it. It obviously doesn't because if you don't have the presupposition of God, a, a lot of things just don't make sense, right? And I agree. If I just said, "Hey, I'm not going to believe in God anymore," just that part, obviously nothing in Christianity makes sense. Nothing, right? Yeah. So it's difficult to argue and really get to the point if you're based because I, I think God as a presupposition is so basic. So it's difficult to have even any conversation beyond a certain point if you don't have the presupposition of God, if you don't assume that God exists, if you don't believe that. So because everything I think won't make sense to you and everything you think doesn't make sense to me. So that's the general. A lot of I feel like my interactions with atheists get to that kind of point. You know. Yeah. You know, it's also recognizing that, you know, this is the morality issue is part of a larger cumulative case. Isn't that right, uh, Dale? Oh yeah, of course. Uh, yeah. Uh, rec- we're like recognizing the objective that morality is objective, or uh, you know, whatever you want to say. The argument that's just one premise in an argument that argues for the existence of God. So yeah, that's just one part getting people to recognize that morality is in fact objective. Oh, and can I uh, chime in on the objective part? Uh, yeah, go ahead. Um. That, that was one of the things that Darren and I were getting into um, about uh, whether God, you know, let's assume if there is a God and he's got all these commandments, he, you know, he kept arguing that that makes it subjective. And um, I kept saying, well, no, because he is, he's, he transcends the world and he is above us. And so what, what he says creates the standard, but, um, you know, one of the other things that I think is important, and I think I may have brought that up, but I'm not sure if I did in my argument is that when you're looking at, um, object versus subjectivity um objective is where somebody is not influenced by their personal opinions um and feelings um when they are referring to or representing facts but and and subjective 
and this is from the Cambridge Dictionary, it's so subjective is influenced by or based on personal beliefs or feelings rather than based on facts. So with the Judeo-Christian God, given that he is omniscient, you know, he sees all, he knows all, uh, only God is, is um, aware of what truly are facts, the facts of the universe and, and the facts of every situation. So there is only one person uh, that can do that. And that, you know, all somebody that's all seeing and all knowing. And so that's where you get that objective standard because only, only that, that special type of person can see what facts are. So uh, they're not representing facts. They are observing and telling and, you know, knowing facts. Uh, so, cause he, I think Darren was just leaving it as, Oh, well, that's just, you know, that's what he thinks and he's one person. So it's subjective. Um, but it, it's in relationship to uh, opinions and statements concerning facts. And so one's a representation, one is a, uh, a true telling of facts. Yeah, I think I, think I would agree. Like this, so somewhat agree. So I, I would say that the fundamental problem with a natural grounding for, you know, morality or moral truths or something like that um, is that at the end of the day, ultimately, it's, it's always going to be arbitrary. Um, and, and this is why I, I prefer to use the word, you know, necessary moral truths. I, I, I'm looking for something that's logically necessary. And this covers sort of that transcendent element. It, it's necessarily true that this action is good or not or something. Whereas naturalists, ultimately, when you, once you, whatever their standard is, it's, it's always going to be an arbitrary standard. And this is one of the issues. Hmm. Now, Dale, with arbitrary, there, you know, that can mean two different things. I mean, arbitrary can mean just where somebody is just randomly, you know, making up stuff in terms of making up rules or it can mean that it's one person or one group deciding something so like for example to me i don't think god is in any way shape or form arbitrary in terms of just you know hey let me flip a coin to see you know, do I want murder to be good or bad? He's not arbitrary in that way. He's arbitrary in that the buck stops with him in terms of uh, because he is the creator of all things, he is the definition. He gets to create the definition of, of what things are, what they mean, and so he controls it and so he's arbitrary in that respect in that it's not up for debate you know he's the creator so it's like if i uh if i create uh you know if i were able to create people you know i can i can do whatever i want with them because i'm the one that's making them yeah, you know, I, I think there's a, a big deal here, and this is very important because I think there's a lot of confusion on how we ground uh, our our objective morality in God. 
And, you know, William Lane Craig, he he often hangs his hat on that third horn, right? Uh, that mm. it's God's nature, right? It's God's nature. Yes. And you alluded to this. And uh, Dale and you both can correct – everybody can correct me if I'm wrong. Um, I don't think humans – I think humans cannot be the source of moral knowledge, right? So we don't have perfect knowledge of the facts, right? So correct. obviously it can't be in us. That's – you know, so – we say it like you said the buck stops with God. Why? Because if you look at it, we define God as good. God is good. He is the good, right? And we don't think that uh, stuff like well-being and so forth can be reducible to that naturalistic term because it's not really good. Well-being wouldn't be good. Well-being would just be well-being. And then you know it's kind of you know kind of a I don't know if it's like it's not a tautology, is it? If you say, you know, I like being good or I like well-being because I like well-being type thing. You know what I mean? Well, and I mean, that? well-being is how is that really very different from hedonism? Yeah, well, you, you know, my idea, though, and just stay with me real quick. Mm-hmm. Uh, God is good. It's an essential aspect of his nature, just like your personality and stuff is essential to your nature. Like you wouldn't be you if you didn't have your personality. Mm-hmm. So that's what it's grounded in. God's good. That's his personality. That's part of who he is. So that's where we ground it. Does that make sense? Right. But then there's the question of the meaning of good. Cause okay. So the you know the Bible tells us that God is good, and this is one of the problems that I have with William Lane Craig's, uh, you know, and other people too with that whole third horn of the euthyphro dilemma that uh, God's nature is good, and so what He says and what what He commands is good, and to me it doesn't fully explain it it seems kind of circular to me yeah and that's why i'm trying to use the idea of like his personality so my idea like so for the ontological implications of moral values and duties point to a necessary personal necessary source right and he's the foundation of moral facts and duties and who we look to for moral guidance so that's Mm -hmm. kind of like where i was going with that and i think that's the deep answer that William Lane Craig hangs his hat on, and he describes it. I, I, I agree. I don't think William Lane Craig's moral argument goes far enough. And that's what See, I want to provide here in in this forum, another moral argument, argument from moral realism. Dale, does that make sense to you? It does. Yeah. So I'm tracking 100% with David Russell. As Teddy already knows, I, I, I fundamentally disagree with um, – your take that I think Darren was absolutely right um, in, in at least in insofar as how it sounds that you're, you Teddy are grounding moral things. It's just as arbitrary as any naturalist um, position. Um, whereas the William Lane Craig answer, the answer that um, I take that that third horn it is grounded in the objective fact of God's nature logically logically necessarily defining the good um and it's, it's the same answer that any atheistic moral platonist would give if you put take god out of the equation what makes the good the good 
um, if you want to pretend there's these abstract principles. Well, it's just out of logical necessity. It is the good. It, it, but doesn't but doesn't the the third horn? The, here's my problem with the the third horn. Um, I don't like that it is implying that there is something else outside of God that is good and that God just happens to uh, mesh with that. To me, God is the definer of what is good. He is the standard. And so his nature, whatever with all of the things the Bible tells us his nature is comprised of, uh, and then the rules that the Bible tells us, the commands that he gives to us, when we try to emulate God's nature, when we try our best to follow God's rules, then we are doing good. So to me, goodness is not something separate of God. It is part of him. It is built in. And and it is because he is a certain way that 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 becomes the definition of good. And I, you know, I'm I'm aware of a lot of the challenges of that, but I am uh, totally ready to defend against all of those tough challenges. because we, I think that we, uh, when we look at those tough challenges, we get squeamish when people say, oh, well, what if God said rape is good? You know what my response to that would be? Not that God would ever say that that's the case. But my response would be, look in the animal kingdom. One of the reasons why we don't say that when, you know, some dog goes and, you know, uh mounts another dog we don't say oh look at that dog just raped that other dog we say no that's just the animal kingdom that's just nature in but because we have been uh taught because you know our parents and others in our society we have been brought up to believe and, and well when i say society Obviously, this isn't the case with all societies, because plenty of societies uh, do all sorts of heinous things to to people. But I'm talking about, you know, Western society in general. Um, We have been brought up to think that there is a sanctity to the body, that we have respect for our own bodies and other bodies. And, um, and so, so rape would be seen as this deep personal violation. But if we were to strip away all of our biases and our feelings about, you know, because that's how we've been conditioned to feel. So imagine if, if we didn't have those, uh, those preconditioned ideas from, from having been brought up with them, then a rape becomes nothing more than just an assault. It's just a different type of assault in terms of a different part of the body. But it is 
no, you know, we think, oh my gosh, you know, I feel violated. I feel dirty. You know, if somebody, you know, is a rape victim, but if, if you don't have, if you weren't brought up with all of these ideas about sex, how, you know, that's supposed to occur only in certain circumstances, uh, things like that. If you strip all of that away, it's just an assault. How is that different from somebody, you know, whacking you over the head or, or doing something else to assault you? Um, and so, but, but what happens is, is that the atheists uh, or people that are just against the whole divine command uh, theory, they try to, you know, bring up these arguments in order to make the other person that's in favor of divine, divine command theory get on, you know, feel like they're on the defense of like, oh, gosh, I don't want to have to defend that. Well, you know what? I'll defend it. And I just did um, because they're squeamish. But, you know, again, take away the emotion from it in the in the in the animal kingdom we don't call it rape we don't call it murder when one animal murders the others but god tells us that we as humans we uh are you know our intelligence is higher we are made in god's image and we have certain standards certain behaviors that we must follow that we should follow not must oh i mean I, I want to phrase it in a way that fun. preserves our free will, that preserves okay. our free will. And yeah, that we ought to. Right. And so, um, it's, I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah. yeah no, no, finish your thought. Well, and so it's just, um, I, I think that with, with divine command theory, uh, you know, I, because I've been thinking about that and, and it's, yeah, I, I think people just get squeamish about uh, defending it because people will, will bring up all of these horrors. Well, what if God is just, you know, a moral monster and are you going to stick up with him? It's like whoever it is that is the creator of the universe and that has the power to and you know again the question of hell we don't know for sure what it is we don't know if there's hyperbole hyperbole involved in the whole lake of fire and eternal conscious torment but you know to me it it, it makes sense to assume the worst to, to cover yourself and so um you know it it just i, I think that whoever has that kind of power, you better stick with them. No, it, it, no the good thing is, is that uh, our God is not, you know, some moral monster. But it, it, it just doesn't matter if you take things to their logical conclusion. Who is, you know, the person that is assuming that they really do believe in God. I don't believe anybody when they say, Oh, I believe in God. And you know, I'll, I'll just take hell eternally. That, that just, you know, unless they. Okay. Okay. So I I do want to, I do want to give Dan a chance to respond. Uh, Dan, what do you think about this so far? Fraud dilemma. Um, Yeah. I think that probably the, I mean, I I could take that. <laughs> I mean, I, I again, I don't I, I don't like to like put a lot of these um, 
like non I would say like non-scriptural language on top of this stuff. That's just that's just the way I am. Um, that's just the perspective I come from. So a lot most of this is like non-scriptural language, right? So it's stuff that we come up with to. But again, I'm not saying it's bad, right? So I'm not. But so I'll hold to it lightly. And if I do hold to it lightly, I would take probably like maybe the third horn, um, because. But I do think that the specific command or if if we're talking about language itself is very important because language and I think scripture teaches this too. God's language does shape reality. So it differentiating differentiating God's character from his command is uh, a little I'm not so sure if I agree with that distinct of a differentiation. So uh, maybe maybe I do lean towards the command theory, but um or have, have sympathies towards divine command theory, but ultimately I would probably be on the third horn because it is it's foundationalism, and I, I if you it, again I would be a foundationalist, right? I think most people out are out there they even the naturalists they argue for some sort of foundationalism, and I think that yeah there is a kind of a misunderstanding about what is you know what how do we define God how what is like what is the Christian like ontology or the what's the how are we defining what's the nature of reality and I it I I feel and find in my conversations with atheists it's very difficult for them to understand what how we're defining God right so um, God is good and then it always goes back to but no he's not. Well, we're not talking about that. You know what I mean? We're not talking about whether the Bible is good or whether the things he does is good. We're just defining good is God. And and I think people, if they have any type of um, even if even if they're naturalists, even if they're naturalists. Right. Like if they if that's. If that's their type of, if they head towards that type of foundation, that the name of, I mean, I, it depends on where they get that from. A lot of them will say, okay, what if all human brains are gone, then we don't have, you know, whatever. But if there is uh, even uh, anything beyond that, even then, that's how we're defining God. That's just we're we're saying that that's God. And then I mean, I I think that that doesn't make sense to a lot of people. Um, but I do think that that is what Scripture teaches: is that God is just the foundation of all existence, all um, you know, even our conscious minds. I, I'm not sure about this part, but I think even our consciousness is found like the the very nature of what consciousness is is God. You know, so it's very difficult to define God out of goodness and again that goes back to the presupposition thing right so i find that atheists do and i think dale or was it darren had this um has he just has a problem with what he feels is good and he sees the christian god is not that but that's not really part of the problem that's not that's not even what we're talking about right we're saying okay if you don't like the christian god if you don't like like the god of the bible or whatever that that's not that's not part of it. We're just saying God is good, and maybe the Bible is all wrong. You could say the Bible is completely wrong, but the Christian God is still good. You know what I mean? You could say that, and then that's a different argument. Obviously, I wouldn't make that argument, but I think that people don't understand that often. So that's how I, what, what I would say. Yeah, yeah, well said. Well said. I, I agree that there is that distinction uh, kind of thing as to whether the biblical description of God is coherent is coheres with that ultimate standard of. of god um being defining the good yeah that's that's a separate question it's it's important as well. but, um, 
Yeah, I guess, so with the youth info dilemma, I'll just say one quick thing, and then I want to shift focus to, okay, what about the standard of naturalism? Is that adequate or not or something? But, um, yeah, so, so Teddy, just for you, um, so your concern over God's aseity, right, um, that's maintained in the third horn, that God's nature is internal to God. It's not a standard you know above and beyond because that's that's one of the I'm, I'm sorry i didn't i didn't hear you quite clearly you said that god's what so god's nature which okay. is the grounding of uh objective moral values and principles, right mm -hmm. uh, that's internal to god that's that's a part of god god you know our yes. nature, so so you don't have to worry there is no external i, I believe in god's aseity Every, everything uh is from God. God is the ultimate source of everything that exists. So, yeah, so like, you don't believe then that there is an external thing that is good and that God just mirrors that. No, of course. That's, that's, that's the first horn. But to me, that's what the third, I mean, well, I don't like that the third horn, it, it, it's just saying, you know, God is good because God is good. I mean, it seems like when you boil it down that that's what they're saying. And so because God is good, he then commands things. But, but it's like how they're, the way they're explaining it, it, it seems, you know, God is good because, you know, that is his nature. It's like, well, it, it, it doesn't give a definition of good. And so that's why with me, to me, divine command theory you were to me it's saying that god or maybe that's just my twist on the divine command theory that it's just god is the creator he is a certain way and that that is what is good and that is the definition the purest definition of what is good whatever he is and whatever he tells us to do that is what's good and and the opposite of that is um, is usually going to be evil, and so uh, yeah. you know, to to do anything other than but but I like giving the definition where it it stops with him because I know that a lot of times people criticize that third horn is saying that it seems like there is something external to God, and I think doesn't William Lane Craig kind of go. No. Think that there is there is this objective thing out there. I because I thought that that was my interpretation, at least from what I was hearing, that that there is this thing that is goodness, and God is good. Meaning God meets that criteria, and I don't like that. Yeah, and, and, the implications of that. I, I, I. Okay. Okay. Uh, so, so yeah, that that isn't what Craig Craig said. So, so yeah, your your concern is is justified. No Christian on earth likes that. That's one of the horns, the two original horns kind of thing. So, yeah, I, I just a quick thing for me. So, so God's internal nature defines out of logical necessity uh, what. You know, that is the good. Whatever his nature is, is necessarily the good. Um, so that and that, that applies at the levels of moral values and moral principles. So sorry, uh, Dan, for more philosophy. But, um, <laughs> no, that's cool. 
um, it's just the way I think. But um, divine command three comes later. Before, there's a time where human beings or God's commands did not exist, and there is still moral perfection in the form of values and principles. More, uh, then God gives commands that are consistent with his nature, morally perfect nature, and those represent moral duties as, as you know, thou shall not kill, thou shall do this or, you know, sacrifice or something like that. So, so that's the way I see, see it working, working. Those moral duties emanate or derive from God's morally perfect nature. Um, so, yeah, um, uh, Which I, guess, I was trying to I was trying to explain that when I when I went into the whole thing with the the personal necessary source. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I got uh, yeah uh, but you know, Dale, I think you you said it right here, and I do think we need to critique the naturalist point here, and I think we need to to, to go back to that. And you guys can correct me if I'm wrong. Like I, I am using some things that I researched and stuff like that to kind of further discussion along. So uh, G.E. Moore said that the hypo- – uh, he gives he gives a, a, a reason why the naturalistic response is, is kind of uh, – doesn't, doesn't add up. So here's a quote that he quotes. He says, the hypothesis that disagreement about the meaning of good is disagreement with regards to the correct analysis of a given whole may be – most plainly seen to be incorrect by consideration of the fact that whatever definition be offered, it may be always asked with significance of the complex so defined, whether it's whether it is itself good. And basically what he's saying is that goodness is not reducible to a natural property. Like, for example, badness, right? Is pain bad? Why is pain bad? You know? Is badness the same as pain? So if moral badness was logically equivalent to pain, it would be redundant to ask if pain was bad. So uh, then you get to the is goodness well-being, right? Because we're relating to that. Is it the same as well-being? Well, that's kind of like asking because well-being is well-being, we should encourage more well-being because it's well-being. You get that, Dale? Oh, of course. Yeah, it's it, perfectly said. Yeah, I, I when I was doing my sort of research for that. So, you know, eth- ethical naturalism is ultimately at the end of the day, always going to be arbitrary or relative or chasing, chasing its tail, as they say. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So you, you get this meta ethical relativism problem of, OK, well, why that standard? Why does that standard of, you know, whatever it be, well, human well-being and flourishing? Why? Why adopt that standard? And for the naturalists, it's always just going to be axiomatic. And, you know, we kind of saw that between Darren and Dan, I think. He was just trying to say, well, well, it's just me and you. Can't we agree? And, and Dan was rightly saying, maybe you and I can agree, but there's going to be someone else out there. Um, and, and a couple other problems that are, are related to this relative or arbitrary basis in naturalism is, okay, well, what do you do when you engage in intercultural things where culture things might be different. Or if you're using the the skeptics, what about interspecies relations? We can construct thought experiments with aliens who have different different standards of moral values. And when we inter interrelate, whose moral standard takes precedence or something like that? So there's a bunch of conundrums there. Um, and a oh, third that'd problem. Be interesting. Aliens. <laughs> I, I actually constructed a thought experiment, but it, it yeah, exactly. 
Uh, so David so I, loves his aliens. I, I, he's a Star Trek fan, so I put in Klingons and Vulcans. Um, yeah, so <laughs> I'm probably a bigger Star Trek fan. Are you okay? I, I don't know. Uh, yeah, dude. I, dude, my whole my whole downstairs is is littered with Star Trek paraphernalia, so I have it all over the place. <laughs> all right, so, so maybe I'll I'll throw this out there after I, I just mentioned. And and there's a third problem with this naturalistic relativism uh, that comes up. It's called the moral reformer's dilemma. How how can you have a moral reformer? It's it's typically. Um, you know, done with it at a cultural level or so. How can you have a Martin Luther who reforms uh, the church from within a society? Or you can expand that to be a species or something like uh, an alien reformer or something like that. So these are some issues that come up. Um, so yeah, I guess with the interspecies relations things, one thought experiment I had is, okay, let's, let's say there's an alien species. Um, so the atheists on the show defined Morality is, okay, whatever is scientifically or objectively proven to be good for the well-being and flourishing of human beings. Great. Klingons don't have that standard. They want to do what's uh, scientifically proven for their well-being and their flourishing. So they have – and for them, raping any female is is good for their well-being and flourishing. Let's just say that's the case. Human, And then we have a human female. Uh, obviously, we have our rule that rape, being raped is not good for us. Okay, a Klingon and a human female meet in a, international, in a, a Vulcan hotel or something on the planet Vulcan. Vulcan, their standard for well-being and flourishing is a principle of – a modern principle of tolerance. We, we respect and uphold all alien species' um, moral standards or something. That's their standard for well-being and flourishing. Okay, so a Klingon rapes a human female in a Vulcan hotel. How is the Vulcan judge to, to make a, how do we settle that conundry? Um, and I, I just don't think the atheists can do that unless they just engage in speciesism and, and say, well, human beings flourishing, that's what's important. They Does that make sense? Genocide. <laughs> right. But, you know, I think, I think that that would appear, it, you know, it would appear to follow that moral goodness is not something natural though you know yeah. i think yeah. it's a non-natural property that explains the moral status of certain actions or things that happen in the natural world so i mean that's just that that's where i'm coming from exactly yeah, yeah i think the the like the point where you what was it that you said about the moral reformers dilemma that is really good actually i would love to hear some of the response from the other side i can't yeah that yeah it's I think be that's good. really really good so Awesome. I, I did my good bit for today. All right. I'll, <laughs> so, well. so uh, there's one more thing I want to cover, and this idea that, uh, okay, so, so there, as there's actually two things I want to cover before we like give our uh, moral argument for the existence of God. Uh, I want they, they talk about it being subjective, and uh, Teddy brought this up too. Is that you know. It doesn't take morality, make it objective anymore. Do you have anything that do you, do you know what I'm talking about, Dale? Do you have a, anything on that? Uh, so, so sorry, it uh, naturalism doesn't make uh, morality. Oh no, no, that that we that us as Christians keep uh, pushing. Basically, I I think they're saying that we're pushing the buck. We're you know it's subjective upon God type idea. Yeah, it's, it's uh, still so subjective morality when we look at it all. Are you talking about even with God? 
that God. Yes, was... yes, yes, yes. The, the, it, it stems off of your conversation, Teddy. Uh huh. Yeah, so I, I just say that's entirely wrong. It's it's right. So, so moral subjectivism says, look, it, it focuses on the speaker or the subject um, itself to base moral truth or falsity on, and you know. So typically, that said, okay, in in terms of God, you can say God's beliefs or His desires. That's that's what defines something as being morally true or false or something. Whereas objectivists more focus on the action itself being morally good or not so it's or the moral standard itself being true or not or something so it's this is why it's, it's not based for christians it's not based on god's desires uh you know that's where you get into that arbitrariness problem uh, that i think teddy gets into where well if he desired rape to be good then that would be good um, you need some objective standard. That's that's his nature in that. So there, there's an objective fact uh, of the matter, and it, it implies through necessity, it, it defines the, the good. It provides that objective. Yeah. And, and I, I just wanted that to be explained verbatim because, you know, I don't want there to be any confusion because we went down a long road to kind of show that, to demonstrate that. And I just wanted to pull that back just a little bit to give that that final definition. And there's one more bit in moral realism in our kind of our, our – because we're kind of just defending moral realism here. Uh, the idea that there's disagreement amongst so many tribes. I think that's an actual argument for moral realism. But uh, do you want to speak on to the fact that we do have so much disagreement on what morality is? I've always looked at it at, okay, well, we're not perfect beings, so we're going to get things wrong. But I do believe in moral progress and moral convergence. I do believe that under the, 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 the basics of it all, there's just basic moralities that shine through every situation. And you know, you see this as I talked with uh, David in moral, when I did moral epistemology. I did bring this up. Um, and I, I think I, I demonstrated it pretty well as far as like saying, hey, you know, there's this tribe in Africa that says killing deformed infants is a good thing. But then when you look at the convergence of it all, they do believe killing babies is wrong, right? And they just justify it by saying, hey, these are babies. You know, they kind of redefine the person. And, and I think that just like we can discover moral truths in the world. We can also get them wrong and not have the facts. You tracking with that? Uh, so that's for me, or yeah, yeah, for anybody that wants to comment on on the idea of why there's moral disagreement uh, in favor of it being for moralism. Gotcha. Yeah, I'm 100% tracking with you. I thought you did a, a great job in your in your show um, when you uh, explained that to David J. Uh, yeah, I. I sort of see it. Um, there, there are three main sources for moral disagreement. Um, so, the first is with re there can be um, disagreement in terms of a moral principle um, that's said to be violated or, or a value or something like that. So, for example, a principle of truth or a principle of, of justice, um, you know, something like that. And we can disagree. Well, what is the nature of the principle? You know, define it. Um, and, and this is where a lot of disagreements come in. I, I, I sort of prepared a bit on that. I'll, I'll get into that later, I guess. But the difference between a formal moral principle 
and a material moral principle. Um, and that sort of relates to David's question to me about situational ethics a bit. Um, but then the second thing, we've discussed this a lot, is there, there are differences in the moral hierarchy when two or more moral principles conflict and you, you have to, okay, what do I do? Do I lie to save a life? Do I not refuse to lie? Or, or you know, you get into these quandaries where there's a, a moral hierarchy and you have to understand which one, uh, which principle outweighs the other in a given case. Um, and then the first one, or the third uh, source of moral disagreement, which I think accounts for the vast bulk, and, and this is where you and I agree, David, David uh, are, is there are factual differences. And, and I think these account for the vast majority of moral disagreements between cultures and that sort of thing. We, we ultimately disagree on the facts. Um, I, I think that I would say that's about at least 95% of our moral disagreements stem from that differences on the facts themselves rather than differences on moral principles involved or something that, that all right sense? yeah no that that makes sense to me uh teddy you got anything on that i haven't heard from you in a while or dan oh, sorry. anybody um, in terms of, oh sorry uh, no go ahead go ahead um, in, oh in terms of just why there's disagreement on on yes. different i i just I think given our our free will, a lot of times I think our uh, our biases tend to influence how we interpret things. Not always, um, but there there are a lot of people out there that uh, are extremely uncomfortable and unwilling to uh, to deal with cognitive dissonance when what they think the Bible is saying conflicts with what they want to do. And so they find ways to try to um, justify it and explain it away and uh, and and manipulate it so that, you know, so for example, like with abortion, uh, you know, let's say somebody was pro-life all of their lives and then all of a sudden they get pregnant and that's going to just, you know, really derail their life. Uh, and then all of a sudden they start to change their opinion on the whole abortion debate. Because they don't want to view themselves as someone who has just taken a, a human life, who has just destroyed life through an abortion. And so because they can't bear or they don't want to bear with the reality of what they're doing, they change it. But, you know, the question is, you know, are, are most people really that Ignorant. I mean, we all know what the truth is, assuming that that person at one point really was pro-life. And so even though they changed their opinion, I think they're probably going to be plagued with guilt, I would think. And they, they try to just gloss over things by saying, oh, well, you know, I'm uh, the 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 fetus is not independent of me and you know all those arguments and uh so i can i can kill it but 
you know, at, at the end of the day, they're still, they're killing something that is alive. Otherwise you wouldn't need to kill it. And, uh, you know, the, the whole DNA code, it's, it's right there. So it's not, you know, a monkey that they're carrying. Um, well, it also proves morality too, because they're making a judgment on whether they should get rid of it or not. Mm-hmm. You know? So they're making right, a moral right. judgment. Oh, so, cause it, it, I mean, you have to stop and think, are you taking a life? And then, mm-hmm. you know, that's that obviously shows that they have this un, underlying uh, this underlying idea that hey, there's something not right here. Right, and they, then they try to just rationalize things by saying, oh, well, it okay, so it's it's human, but it's not a person yet, and so you know they try to use all of these. Um, rationalizations to make themselves feel better about doing something wrong. But, you know, there are a lot of women out there who have had abortions and who deeply regret it and they're haunted by it. And, you know, nobody talks of, well, I mean, some people talk about it, usually the people who are pro-life, but, um, you know, the pro-choice people, they, they, they like to just kind of sweep that under the rug uh, in terms of how people are haunted by that, or many people are haunted by that decision. And one would have to ask, if you're not haunted by that decision, what is wrong with your soul? Because um, that should haunt you. Uh, and And I'm not saying that if somebody has done that and they repent, you know, I, I, I do believe that they can get forgiveness. So I'm not trying to say that. But if somebody is still persisting in rationalizing things by saying that, um, no, it was, uh, you know, it, it wasn't a person. It was a human, but not a person. So I could uh, dispose of it. Um, then, you know, they... They should feel bad. And, and you know what? The, the conscious, I know that, I, and I guess, I don't know, I guess it's in the Bible specifically, or is it just something that preachers say when you're forgiven? I mean, you are washed of your sins, but there is something to be said uh, for still you know, not forgetting about what one did. So in in terms of somebody who has repented, I'm not saying that they should still feel haunted by um, what they did, but they should uh, have that awareness still there so that they don't commit that offense again. Do do y'all see what I'm saying with that? Yeah. Yep. Yeah, I do. Uh, Dan, do you want to jump in here and uh, conclude this little section that we've been working on here? Uh, Sure. I mean, I do think that the cultural, like talking about culture and um, different cultures as kind of the the basic, I want to say it's the basic unit uh, that the more basic moral decision maker, (laughs) because I think we generally talk about individuals as hey i'm making moral decisions i i do think that 
actually it's a lot more complex than that. I think the culture is actually making a lot of decisions. Um, but that doesn't necessarily um, mean that we don't have, you know, we don't have we don't have our own decision or we don't have our own free will. But it's just that we need to, I do, do think we need to take, talk about it on the cultural level. That doesn't mean that the culture is the, is the source of morality. I'm not saying that. But I think that the culture is like the decision maker largely of the of of morality like american culture or western culture just makes the moral decisions and for the most part almost all the people within that culture will just go along with that morality and then another culture will disagree right and so the the question like i think you were talking about is just how come there's so many differences in 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 more in um in terms of our morality and i would like to look at it on a cultural level like why are there so many different like how did these cultures get to where they are? Um, I would say that it's a lot of it is the that's the natural tendency. And I think this is the scriptural perspective is that there's chaos, there's evil out there, and it's God who's like actively holding it back. So God removes his like at his like he he stops telling people this is what's right or wrong. He stops making that like poking into that person's heart or whatever it is, then the naturally like evil stuff will just creep in in different ways. Right. And then cultures go awry or cultures go astray. Right. So, um, I think like Romans one talks about this, right. It's like if, when people turn away from God, he gives them over to their lust and their impurity. It's not like they, they actually choose to go down that route. It's that's the natural thing. And when God removes himself, you know, that they will go into, uh, they will degrade morally, right? And so those are the natural consequences of not focusing on God, not worshiping him, not not having him as your more, like, uh, as your center, right? So that's kind of how I see why there's a lot of different cultures. And I know it doesn't explain it on a, like, a, a scientific or whatever. It's just a, like a well, biblical story, right? Well, Dan, um, would, it, would it help if, if I were to say, like, cultural differences on morality are not typically real moral differences, but factual differences? What do you mean by that? What do you mean by the factual differences? Well, I mean, we get things wrong, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, you know— you're not saying that there's not an actual moral truth out there, but that cultures vary because they either I don't have enough information mm-hmm. um, because I think I think we can't really have progress if there's no benchmark. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. So I, I think that, you know, we get things factually wrong when it comes to that. But I, I think you're right. How we come to know certain things is obviously through culture, through through religion, through all sorts of various different ideas. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and yeah. I think that that's why immoral epistemology, you know, I, I told David right when we started our debate, I said, hey, man, you know, I'm open to a lot of different ideas of how we come to know what's right and wrong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, I think that's probably the, the I think that that's in because for all of us Christians, we kind of agree generally on, OK, the moral God is the God is good. Right. God is um, he defines morality and all that. But it's like, how does that get transferred down to human beings? That's a, uh, I think that we might have a little bit more difference. I don't know. We haven't even explored it. So I don't know if we'd have differences or not. Um, it's interesting how you say there's like certain facts and that those facts are um, 
getting the facts wrong is how it leads to the moral differences because um i'm not sure if this is what you mean but i generally put a layer in between facts and let's say our values and that's like the interpretation of those facts is that what you mean like misinterpreting the facts or just plain getting the facts wrong i'm thinking that there's there's obviously a standard of truth there's there are like i think it's wrong to own slaves right yeah but beforehand people said tried to justify it i think they were getting that fact wrong like i the example i gave with the infants uh being killed by uh that tribe in africa because they were deformed Mm -hmm. they're factually wrong that deformed children are demons or whatever they they say they are they're human beings and we've been able to prove that they are And, and these kids there's you know i there's you know you find pictures online of uh, these kids that they've been taken and saved from that that type of thing. Hmm. Uh, okay, Dale, so, you have anything? Uh, yeah, well, I, yeah, I was just gonna say, like, I, I appreciated uh, Dan's take there. So mm-hmm. this is the strength of having bringing in the scriptural thing. This has got to be paramount as well. But there, there's also so so I do agree with you for the most part. But we have to be mindful that there are times when we can completely agree on the facts. But because we live in a fallen world, some people are just sinners. They, they, we can agree, sure, it's immoral to do it, but I want to do it because I'm selfish or I, I want to. So that we do have to remember that 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 sin nature that people people have um, that drives them. We we could agree on the facts all day, but we would still have a moral difference because people. I, I guess that would go back to the values thing, maybe. But um, yeah, yeah so our compasses to, are off. Yeah, right. exactly. So wait, I, let me clarify. Are you saying like, okay, they kill a baby, right? So in all cultures, no matter what, killing babies is wrong. It's just that the certain cultures that actually do kill babies, they redefine them as not babies. That's what you're there, saying? It seems that way. So if it you would ask that way. Yeah. any culture. I think there's moral the- convergence. Yeah, I think moral convergence is a real thing. Hmm. Um, well, Andrew, like Fisher, Spartans, Andrew, Andrew Fisher. Andrew Fisher. babies. Yeah. Well, you know, yeah, be, well, they'd kill them if they had deformities. They wouldn't kill a perfectly healthy baby. They didn't think that was right because if they were to kill perfectly healthy really babies. Care. Yes, they did right. because that would br- well, that would further their, their honorable idea of war and fighting. They want strong babies. That was their idea. They wanted strong well, babies. Well, I mean, but I think that came from just the fact that uh, strong babies are useful to them. And uh, and they were not seeing uh, deformed children or babies as having any use, and and so they 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 placed no value on it. But I don't know that they didn't still see them as uh, babies. I just I just think that yeah. they like to pick and choose, kind of like uh, in the same sense that you know you. Uh, have a a container of strawberries and you value strawberries but you you throw out the ones that are moldy and uh, and you keep the ones that are good and and you don't feel bad about getting rid of the the ones that uh, you don't value yeah well there's also the fact that the strawberries are moldy right and you also have the fact that you know they didn't see these kids as uh, uh, human beings, basically. So, I mean, they're, they're looking at them as uh, 
a drag or, or whatever. They're, they're justifying something that they know to be wrong. You know, so they're justifying it in a way that is okay for them. At least that's wrong. So, okay, so I think this comes back to my conversionist theory, right? And the reason I bring this up is because uh, I read this with Andrew Fisher when he says, imagine we put 50 people from around the world in individual rooms and ask them to think up the 10 most important moral rules. Again, I suspect there will be a large amount of conversions. For example, they might all write that it is wrong to steal or wrong to kill children or wrong to enslave people. Although the lists would not be identical, there would certainly be much overlap. A good reason would be that there are certain moral properties and that they have been recognized by the people in the rooms. And that comes from his book, Metaethics and Introduction, pages 57 and 58. I think he says it right here. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I, I think eight, eight or nine times out of ten, it's, it's going to be a factual difference that's dividing us. But um, yeah, I think Dan was right to mention that there is this degrading, I think he, he mentioned, uh, of our values when we're separated from, from God or, or not. And that can account for some moral differences as well. Yeah, and David Brink says our moral thinking and discourse might systematically be mistaken, but this would be a re- revisionary conclusion to be accepted only as a result of extended and compelling argument that the commitments of ethical objectivity are unsustainable. In the meantime, we should treat the objectivity of ethics as a kind of default assumption or working hypothesis. So I, yeah, I, yeah, <laughs> that's where I, yeah, I think I, I, I lean on that kind of, because I, I do think we do get the things wrong and I do think there's a degradation as well, but Go ahead. You guys can answer that. I've been talking. No, do you think more. with the whole convergence theory, I, I don't think that if if you were to uh, have you know ten people who were raised in a vacuum in terms of being taught ways to live, in terms of you know morals and ethics. If they if they were just starting from a blank slate, I don't think that they would uh, necessarily all pick or or, or or be kind of close in terms of what they pick. I think it can depend. Uh, I think the reason why you do see that is you're probably you know the sample of the people that are picked. They're most of them have probably had some sort of. Um, religion influ- uh, influencing their morals most of them probably and, and then it depends on for example are you picking people is it a big enough group and are you picking people from the bottom middle and upper tiers of society because for example and in terms of strength and power if you were to pick 10 people 10 kings of different countries, um, you know, they might not value things uh, the same way that we do. It, it may, uh, for example, uh, you know, maybe they, they might not think that murder is necessarily so wrong if they feel that they can always, you know, land on the uh, <laughs> the desirable side of that equation, you know, to yeah, well, you know, doing the murdering as well, opposed yeah. to receiving. Teddy, I would just refer you to Andrew Fisher and uh, Russ Landau. 
I think mm-hmm. that's his name, Russ Landau, uh, on his his defense of moral realism because uh, they uh, do conclude, and most metaethicists that I've been reading within the last three years do say there's very much a convergence when it comes to humanity. You know, mm-hmm. there is this convergence, and you know, um, yeah, I mean, I, let I don't me know. ask you, yeah. Do they do they argue or would you argue, I guess, that this convergence, let's say like the overlap part, the, that morality can actually lead us to maybe the moral society that we all want? Like, is that enough? Well, I think discovering those truths definitely tend us towards progress. Right. So, yeah, like, I, I think that. I think. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think more progress and convergence would not be possible unless more realism is true. Yeah, you know? I agree with that. But I, the the question I would just like to kind of distinguish is like because some of those overlaps to me seem like okay, basic morality, right? But some of the the morality that we're arguing for in our society today, I feel like, is a little bit higher level than that, right? It's not like don't kill anybody. It's more like, hey, don't kill someone who stole from you. And like someone who's stealing from you, you have a right to kill that person. I think if you ask that question, you might get a lot less convergence or or even up to the level of love your enemies like or, you know, pray for those who persecute. Is that can you get to that level of moral convergence? I think that's a little bit more difficult to argue. I don't know. Uh, Dale, what do you think? Uh, so sorry, what um, about like what's the question? What, what, Dan, what Dan just said. Say it again, Dan. I guess the question is, okay, we, we agree that there's some sort of moral convergence, right? That there's a lot of overlap in terms of morality between a lot of these cultures, right? Maybe they, not all the cultures agree on everything, but there's maybe a, a center or a core that they might agree on, right? Yeah. And um, my question is, is that center or core good enough for to get to the society that we want? You know, is, for example, like one of the core might be don't kill and don't murder, right? Do not kill. But is it good enough? Is that good enough? Because I would I would say like Jesus is is arguing to a much higher level of morality. Right. So he would say not only don't murder, but also, you know, if someone if someone steals from you, if someone's your enemy, if someone insults you, don't don't kill that person either. Right. But whereas some societies, I think a lot of people would say, hey, if someone is assaulting you, someone's attacking you, you have the right to pull out a gun and shoot them. Right. So so it's it's like it, and, and, and there's probably debate even with regard to what Jesus says, obviously. But I'm saying it is that that core of morality good enough, you know, yeah. um, to get us where we want to go. It's uh, so. So, yeah. So I, I would answer it, it depends. Right. So good enough for what? Um, if good enough for salvation? No, you Jesus calls us to, uh, well, yeah, like I, I would say, again, because of the degradation. So the, the moral principles are good enough. If, if we never fell or anything like that, then we would be living consistently with God's nature. We would be consistent with the moral values and principles grounded in his nature. And, and we would be living the lives that we are designed, uh, that God designed us to live to, to the max. So, so in that sense, yeah, I, I do think the moral principles are necessary and sufficient. So um, this kind of, I don't know, do you guys mind if I get a little bit technical or is, are you guys bored with, with that stuff? 
No, go ahead, man. Okay. All right. So one of the things, so when we're looking at a, a moral principle, so this is sort of from a, a deontological perspective, there, there are moral principles or rules like the principle of justice, for example, treat, treat equals equally, treat unequals uh, unequally in the appropriate way. Um, so, so something like that would constitute a formal principle. So when we're looking at moral principles, there are at least two aspects. There's the formal principle, which is it sets the necessary conditions or boundaries. Think, think of a mold. When you're making a statue, you have a mold, and that defines the boundaries of, of it. These are the necessary conditions for what the statue is going to be. But then on a further level, you, you also have to f fill it up with stuff, that, and that's the material moral principle, you know, how you... Uh, do you put concrete in the mold? Uh, these are the sufficient conditions to create the statue. And it's only together that you have a set of necessary and sufficient conditions. Um, so to give, so, so I gave sort of the example of, of justice um, as the formal principle. The material moral principle, um, I'm just looking at my notes for the example. So like you, you could have like um, uh, a meritocracy material moral principle. Well, how, how do you treat equals equally and unequals unequally? Well, you give ev to everyone according to their merit. Uh, you could have a Marxist principle, gi give to everyone according to their to their needs or something like that. Um, and that would constitute the material moral principle. Um, and David Johnson, just for you, for your question. So that's, that's where situation, situational facts or morally relevant facts come into the equation at the level of the material moral principle. They inform how the material moral principle is to be applied and make sense given the situation. So yeah, so so just to summarize, so the formal moral principle is like mold. The material moral principle is, well, do I put concrete in there or jello? Um, and in any given case, there's a, a right, there's a moral fact. There's a, a fact that it, you must put jello in this situation or you must put concrete into the mold in this situation so that's the difference between a, a moral objectivist versus a moral subjectivist um so val i think what he would ground it in desires you, you can put either jello into that mold or concrete into that mold um yeah that, that i'm going kind of off topic sorry <laughs> <laughs> it's all good man it's all good but like i said this is our conversation so this is our, our time to make our case and we are getting into the time we got to make our case so um anybody want to start making their case for or you know give us a good moral argument for the existence of god if you guys want to do that or not or anything else or do you just want to go into uh answering hard questions uh about what the Bible says. I, I know Teddy wanted to get into some, some areas that she felt like she would like to discuss, and I, you know, we can conclude our time either that way or giving a good moral argument for the existence of God that Dave Johnson's not going to be able to, uh, you know, <laughs> defeat. <laughs> it's all about David J. You got to stick yeah, it to right. him. So. <laughs> Take it to him. Whoops, he's listening. Oh no. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> So Teddy, what what do you want? I know you were. Did you want to do the applied ethics or moral arguments? Or? I mean, we can, or you know, when I ask 
my son, you know, if he wants this or that, his typical response is both. (laughs) (laughs) No, it doesn't work that way. And he still, he still, you know, persists with the both. Um, you know, well, what I'm if down with both. If quick... everybody's yeah, if everybody's down for both, I'm down with it. I, I I've got I've got today off, so. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we could do a quick, just a real quick one, and and or at least I'll speak for myself. Mine is uh, I I think I can give just an upshot um, in terms of how I I come to my belief. Uh, well, I mean, I was brought up in the belief, um, and I I've never strayed from it but it has become much stronger uh in terms of christianity there's uh, in all religion there's an element of faith and i like to say that you know there's a certain percentage that each person has like how much faith do they have versus evidence and so as i have um gotten older, I feel that I've gotten um, a lot more evidence than I had, you know, when I was a little kid. Uh, but so, uh, so, I'm, so if I were to just make the argument to someone else, uh, I would start off with um, whether it's more logical to believe that uh Something, especially as intelligently designed as our universe, that that came from nothing, just, you know, haphazardly, or whether there was um, a designer, a brilliant designer. And I would say that we have absolutely no evidence at all from our experience, our collective experience, to show that something can be created from nothing. And, and by nothing, I don't mean, uh, you know, what, what some of these people think, like, you know, these vacuums and all of that. You know, uh, what, who, was it Aristotle that said nothing is what uh, rocks dream about? That's what I mean as nothing. And I think even when you talk about the law of gravity, that is something. So, um, so it is illogical to think that something can, especially something intelligent can come from nothing, but even just something coming from nothing. So that to me is, we have no basis for doing that. So if one does go that route, one is automatically putting faith into their argument from the get-go. So um, after that, I am really big on looking at the combination of history uh, in terms of both, not just the Bible, but secular historians and, and looking at the record and in looking at the way that the Christian church grew and um, all of that. And I, I mix that history that we have with science and forensics with the Shroud of Turin. Uh, and I think that when you combine all of those things, that is just a powerhouse that um, shines a light of truth 
on the Christian God being the God. And I think it is uh, just a horrible, horrible thing that uh, seminaries and uh, that, that churches don't teach people and, and that, and that people themselves, you know, religious leaders don't learn more about the Shroud because it's not only the Shroud of Turin, it's not only a fantastic way to um, get non-believers into becoming believers, especially those ones that want, uh, some people just, their minds are oriented that way. They need scientific evidence that they have such a hard some people just have such a hard hard time in believing in god and something that they cannot see and 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 the shroud of turin gives them that and and they need to but i think a lot of um churches and seminaries and, and the people that run them i think a lot of them have um not paid much attention to the Shroud of Turin because they have read the headlines that, you know, the carbon-14 test disproved it, and so it's all a bunch of baloney. And so so I think either they have just fallen for the headlines and they have not delved into it deeply enough, or they may be squeamish about... uh, having to not only learn all about it, but then defending it against the people that are going to say, oh, well, these, you know, the carbon-14 test didn't work. And if you uh, argue against that, you're anti-science. And it's like, all I say is, how about you go take a look on the front page? I I forget the name. It's out of Florida. There's, they're the big um, carbon testing company. And they have right on there that you cannot reliably uh, radiocarbon date textiles, you know, materials, linen. And, and then you get into how contamination totally can throw off dates. And so people need to get educated about that. And when they learn about that, not only can they bring in the true, as Dale would say, seekers of knowledge. Um, No, people that are going to have their bias, people that do not want to submit to a God, people that don't like uh, the nature of the Christian God, they are going to choose to not um, observe that information and and take it in. And, you know, I have no problem. Let people duke it out because I, I think the evidence is, is fine and dandy uh, in terms of um, proving beyond reasonable doubt that the Shroud is authentic. But, um, but it, it can also, so aside from converting people or bringing people to the faith, I think that it provides a wonderful gift to Christians because for the, one of the wonderful things is that you can see what, you know, or have a good idea of what Jesus actually looked like. And, you know, it's not worshiping the shroud. I think some Christians think, you know, just don't want to believe in the shroud because they think it's either idolatry or something, or perhaps 
they um, want to feel like, oh, well, I don't need evidence for my faith. I'm better than that. I just believe, you know, blindly or whatever. And to me, that's that just doesn't make sense uh, because the shroud is is a gift from God that I believe God left this evidence for us and also as sort of like a an early photograph of sorts so that we can see uh, God incarnate. And I think that's just really special. And I treasure that in the same way that I treasure a photograph of a loved one. And I also treasure the fact that, and, and also the more you study it and you really start to learn what all uh Jesus went through during the crucifixion and and that just drives home the the enormity of the sacrifice but it's but it it can also lower uh the percentage point of faith that goes into the equation into your uh evidence for god so so you know for yeah, myself, I think I think that's important Mm-hmm. I th- yeah. yeah, I think that's and, important. And I didn't think we'd get into a shroud discussion when we're debating moral, uh, you, <laughs> morality. You've, you've, that's got, cool. <laughs> you've got Teddy on here. So, uh, you know, the shroud's going to come up, right, David? <laughs> David Jay? The shroud is up for David Jay to talk about. Yeah. Um, so, Dan, uh, do you want to get into your uh, argument here, your moral argument? Um, I generally don't make a moral argument okay. for God. I'm from a, uh, at least not from an apologist's perspective. I do make like moral arguments for the gospel. And then um, I usually go that route generally. So okay. I guess the argument that I would generally make is like, is it, and it is usually only targeted toward Westerners. Um, but that's basically that a lot of the morality that we have today I don't think you can. I don't think you can get it just from you know, examining, like like Darren says, examining brain structures and different things like that. And I don't think you can get it even if by comparing all the cultures and seeing their overlaps and seeing where they come, they get there. Like what we agree on. Um, I think that you know our the type of morality that most of Western society really wants today is 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 more than that is more than all those things, you know? So I think that you can get, Hey, don't, don't kill uh, your friend. Don't kill like the people in your community. Don't kill your people and your neighbors. But I think it gets difficult when it's like, don't kill a stranger. And then it gets even more difficult when it says, don't kill someone who's hurt you or don't kill someone who's um, actively trying to harm you. Um, I think it's, it's kind of easy to say, hey, help out your friends, help out your, your family. But it's a little bit difficult to say, hey, help out a stranger or help out, you know, the person down the street who's poor and doesn't you don't know them at all. Like, where do you get that morality? And I think that that's kind of the morality that, you know, people on both the left and the right want in a Western society. It's like, hey, we want to care for the poor. We want to care for, you know, people with different colors than us or whatever. Like, how do you get that morality? And um, I think if you trace it back to like things like basic human rights, I think you can do that. But then you trace that back, and where are those developing? I, I generally think you can look at some research from like the Christian Smith or Marcelo Pera. Marcelo Pera is actually an atheist, and he wrote a book called uh, "Why We Should Call Ourselves Christian." Right, so he's an atheist who would kind of call himself a Christian. 
only because he recognizes that almost all of uh, secular culture, especially Western secular culture, is actually Judeo-Christian at its foundation and has Judeo-Christian morality as its foundation. So um, that's how I would argue it. I would say, hey, how did, how did the entire Roman Empire that was very dominant and valued strength over anything, how did that, that get converted, the Western culture get converted into our society today where we're trying to care for the poor and marginalized? You know, how did that happen? And I, I would argue that that happened under the auspices or under the influence of this thing called Judeo, uh, Judeo-Christian culture, right? And that is what created all the moral intuitions that a lot of secular people have. All these moral intuitions about helping people, not harming people, loving people, justice, all that. I think that's from the culture, to be honest. And that culture is – the foundation is Judeo-Christian culture, and it requires – culture to really shape people's morality it requires stories it requires songs it requires just experiences it requires um that type of like just relationships social relationships to create morality that type of deep intuitive morality that we have in western culture and i'm not saying western culture is perfect i think the morality is often certain respects but in general, I don't think you can get to that type of morality without that really strong backing of Judeo-Christian culture. And I think some of you have argued that too. And so it, it says, how did a culture change? What is the power that can actually change a culture like that from something kind of evil like a Roman Greek culture to this culture, which we would all – I think atheists would agree too that it's, it's kind of a better culture or has progressed a little bit at least. And I would say that you have to shape the culture. And what is the culture? How is the culture shaped by? How is it? How do we get these values in the culture? Is these stories. And what is, I, I think the driving story behind all of this is really Jesus' death on the cross. And I think you can see it in almost every powerful movie that comes out today in Western culture. There's some sort of like self-sacrifice in there or some sort of universal love or some sort, you know, it's all these such Christian values that are in all of these movies. And these movies are propagating that moral intuition to the next generation or to more people. And at the root of them, I really, really think those are values that are rooted in the gospel. And if you want, if you're an atheist and you're saying, "Hey, I want to like have these moral values, but I don't want the God, I don't want the Christian part," you can try, <laughs> and I think you can try, but it's untested, and it's pretty dangerous. You don't know where that's going to go. You know, the I think the Judeo-Christian uh, morality that that the Judeo-Christian foundation has it's tested. It's produced this particular culture. Yeah, with all its flaws, yeah, but if we agree that there's been more, some moral progress, it's produced that moral progress. And I think it's really the only culture that you can argue has produced it. Atheists, you can create a secular culture, but you have a long way to go to do that. Are you really willing to risk all of it to go down that route? I think that would be pretty risky. So I, I would argue it from that perspective. I would say – Hey, if you really value this culture, look at where it comes from. There's something valuable about that one story about Jesus dying on the cross for our sins, about him sacrificing right. himself, about God loving us. You know, that, so that's how that's I was. That's good. Um, Dale, uh, we're going to jump into you. Uh, give uh, give us a brief moral argument. 
Okay. Um, so, so, yeah, my argument would be very simple uh, for God's existence. It would be two premises. Uh, it's not the William Lane Craig version, but it's close enough to it. Um, but I, I would, instead of the, for the second premise, for the first premise, uh, let's say, instead of objective moral values and duties exist or principles and duties exist, I would say uh, necessary uh, moral truths exist and moral truths encompass values, duties, and principles. Um, and then I would, premise two would just be straightforward and uh, God is the only cause um, or a grounding for these necessary moral truths. Uh, and then it would go into, okay, therefore God exists, obviously. But um, yeah, so it would come down to the warrant uh, of how we warrant those two premises as being true. Um, so yeah, you know, I, I would make sort of similar arguments to try and prove that these moral truths are in fact logically necessary, sort of along the lines as I was attempting to do with um, Val towards the end of our show there. Um, and believe it or not, he, he even agreed with me as, a, as an atheist that if I, if I could establish there, there is these moral principles or rules that actually exist in some kind of objective way, well, then it would follow from them being universalizable that they are, in fact, logically necessary. So, um, yeah, that, that's what I would try to do is establish that there are these objective moral uh, principles or something like that. And then from there, take it to transforming that into that they're logically necessary. They, they can't be other than what they are. Um, and then the second the second premise saying, well, God can be the only cause for this or something, I, you know, I would... Okay, well, what's the nature? Logically necessary moral truths require a necess logically necessary grounding of some type. Um, so whatever is the cause would also be necessary. Great. Um, then I would try to establish the personhood of that logically necessary grounding. Um, and I gave three arguments with, with uh, Val in the show, right? So, you know, it, it doesn't make atheistic moral Platonism where, where we just say, moral principles exist abstractly like in some kind of platonic realm is just uh, illogical it doesn't make sense you know more moral values and principles are grounded in persons and, and again val agreed with that as an atheist um also there's a, a design argument we we have in moral epistemology we as human beings have moral consciences and this is what is providing the moral dimension, how we're making moral judgments and that it's what produces our moral intuitions when informed by facts or cultures or whatever. It, 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 all go back, it all goes back to we have this faculty that allows us to appreciate moral truths uh, and a moral dimension to just descriptive facts and that sort of thing. Uh, why, why is that just so happening to be tuned to all the quote-unquote good moral principles and values you know justice truth it's not a mixed bag where well we appreciate justice but our moral conscience prefers lies or something like that i think everyone here admitted that we have at least in general this uh, preference for truth god god is truth for crying out loud he, he's that's an ontological claim almost um and that sort of thing so that would require an intelligent designer, I would think, to attune our moral consciences to these moral principles, necessary moral principles and that sort of thing. So again, that establishes the personhood um, of this cause of these necessary moral truths. Um, so, so yeah, that would be a couple ways I would establish these two premises in establishing, yeah, the, uh, 
uh, a necessary being uh, that establishes necessary moral truths and is a person. As Thomas Aquinas put it, that's what most of us mean by God. Um, obviously, it doesn't establish all of his attributes, but I mean, close enough, it, it certainly destroys atheism. And can I actually mention one thing real quick? Sure. Um, I was just going to say, because, uh, and I, I think you did say, uh, you know, give a, the moral argument for God's existence. And I didn't do that. Uh, I, but I, but I generally, well, I never really approach, uh, arguing for, for the existence of God through a moral argument. I tend to do more evidence-based stuff as opposed to those philosophical arguments um, so just wanted to say that I wasn't trying to ignore you on that. I, it, but I, I did largely hear just kind of in my head, give your evidence for God, but you did just ask for the moral argument. So. <laughs> no, that's fine. That's fine too. You wanted to beat up David a little bit on the shroud and you did, <laughs> succeeded in that. So, um, shroud, shroud, I shroud, think- shroud, 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 shroud. I think this has been really helpful on, uh, on a lot of bases to get, you know, to let people know where we're coming from. Maybe this will help them understand uh, at least our, our inoculators that, you know, we do have a rational basis for what we believe and why we believe it. But not only that, but what was that, Dale? Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. I, I just wanted to ask um, a question for, for all three of the Christians Quick, quickly, like don't don't take a lot of time because I know you're trying to get to stuff. But uh, what what do you make of my uh, my notion of focusing on uh, the moral truth as being uh, necessary rather than objective, which is the standard way? Because I, I think by by trying to argue that they're necessary, we bypass all of this. Well, isn't evolutionary thing you know well-being, human flourishing? That's an objective standard. Get get rid of that. We're we're looking for. A necessary thing, and that really cuts to the to the chase. But yeah, I'd just be interested if, if any of the Christians find that a, a helpful approach, or they prefer the old the objective standard. By by necessary, and and I had I had gotten a call, and so I left the conversation briefly. Um, so let me just get clarification on with with that being necessary. I don't think that morality is necessary. I think it is and given that it's coming from on high um, and that there are penalties and rewards that come into play uh, you know God that wasn't an accident that that factors into it now that and I think that it's it's kind of like like children when you're when you're raising a child initially uh, parents, uh, try to teach children through rewards and, and uh, punishments uh, or consequences. Uh, but you then hope that these rules then start to become internalized in, in the person and that it then just becomes a part of them. And so obviously it's better to do things uh because they're good for goodness sake. And, and also, but, you know, think about it too. Uh, the idea that it's better to give than to receive, 
Um, that is, but it, that's kind of a little bit misleading because when you give, you you are receiving something. You're receiving the joy of having done something good, and so there, there is still something coming back to you. So, um, so I I don't think that morals are necessary. It's it, it's just that they are, and if if they didn't exist, then. I think as a society, we would uh, try to create rules so as to have order and, and not chaos. But, uh, but the beauty of, for example, in, in America uh, with our rules, it's not majority rule uh, because the majority doesn't get or at least not in principle. I mean, that's starting to change. But the majority doesn't get have a right to trample upon the rights of the individual because, again, in America, we are grounding uh, our society and our rules and our principles in uh, the whole idea that there is a sanctity uh, to human life because we are uh, created in the image of God. And so it is because of that belief that the individual has value and that, you know, the majority mob rule it isn't supposed to to fly in America. It sometimes does, but that's not how um, things have been set up all right cool thank you right. and dan and oh um, yeah yeah uh real quick i mean okay so i pull a lot of my my moral philosophy obviously from you know the research i've done my friend swan soda he came up with a really good moral argument and he debates it with my friend jordan karim from uh reasons to doubt uh on proselytize or apostatize my other show if you guys want to check it out uh, he gives a Thomistic approach and uh, he he gets into moral realism. I think when we look at moral realism, I and, and you know, like I said, my philosophy obviously converges with uh, a little bit from Craig, a little bit from uh, uh, Michael Jones from Inspiring Philosophy, and my friend Swan. Uh, they brought up a lot of good stuff, and, and I think you know when you are able to demonstrate that moral realism is true, you can make a successful argument from there. Uh, but you gave me something else to consider with. Your necessary moral truths, and, and I wouldn't have an answer for you right now uh, on whether it's helpful or not. I have to look more into it because you know I'm not I'm the type that doesn't like to make judgments on the fly because then I'll end up uh, messing up or or you know uh, you know not representing things correctly. So I would have to look more into it. If you'd like to send me some stuff on it, I would appreciate it. I'd love to read it. Um, I love this type of stuff as as that, but it. it uh, I'll let I'll let Dan give his his take real quick before I, I close this out or or move us on to the next topic. Um, like I mean I I've said this before, but I don't think I'm a very I'm not an expert in the that uh in philosophy or in and I mean even under, I understand a, a little bit about like some of the terms you use, but I'm not like an I can't use it like what necessary just means that it has to it has to be right. That's what it means. Is it's that what you mean by that? Yeah, it's impossible for it not to be true. Um, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, 
uh, necessarily doesn't mean like I think <laughs> normally in uh, colloquial colloquially we use it like oh you need it right so it kind of means something like that it, it just has to have be there right um, so I mean thinking about it that way that's interesting to me I, again I can't really comment on it to say oh this is the where I would say the holes are or anything no way I can't do that but it that seems interesting to me um I would want to hear a little bit more about like how do you prove something like moral truth is necessary maybe you explained it <laughs> I, I missed it but um I want to hear some of that stuff and if you can get to necessary like and, and this is another like I guess distinct this distinguishing the terms between what is objective versus what's necessary right Ob objective just means like outside of our opinions or, or whatever but necessary me could mean inside of our opinions but you just cannot logically um you it just has to be in your mind right is that is that a correct distinction uh well well that would uh, if i understand you correct yeah that would be more factual necessity but I, i'm talking more metaphysical or, or logical necessity it, it's it's true again I, you're not a philosophy guy so i don't want to yeah yeah sorry <laughs> no no not, no i'm saying sorry to you I, I, do you do you know modal logic or, or anything like that or no, I'm sorry, I don't. <laughs> okay, um, so, never mind. Yeah, it's put it this way: simplest. It, it's impossible for that moral truth to be for for that uh, moral principle to be false in any conceivable set of uh, morally relevant uh, similar situations or something. Mm -hmm. It's true in every set of circumstances that are sufficiently similar. And how do you show that for morals? Yeah, it's it's so I I think that's part of it, right? And I, I sort of developed a half baked um, version of that on my show with Val, where I, I first established that there is this rule, there is a, a moral objective moral rule. You know, it's an objective moral fact that the principle of justice exists. And I think I gave there are th three reasons from what I remember, but the the most basic one that I I hope most of us as Christians will agree with is is the moral intuition we, we have a properly basic belief that a principle of justice is true or the our principle of truth is true in general hmm. no are david uh, dale are you saying that justice can exist even if there was no god that this objective no. truth i'm sorry i couldn't hear you Oh no! Right, so so God exists. God exists along with His nature in every single logically possible world, and that's that's why these truths are are necessary. Justice. God is just. He has this just nature. He's truthful. He has this truth nature in every single logically possible world. Again, I'm. I don't want to get too technical because uh, Dan's probably ripping out his hair with philosophy stuff. But um, <laughs> no, it's good. I like it. Awesome. All right, cool. So, so that's that's all I'm saying is is it is true that this moral principle applies in every single logically possible world. It, it's exceptionless, um, and that's sort of the. What so, we, are you you're saying that the, this principle is just that there is justice? Yeah. However, you define it, it exists. Oh, interesting. Okay. In, in God's nature, though, right? So, God is just. I don't. I don't see the principles as independent. If that's what Teddy's 
getting at. But so you're not even talking necessarily about what is the justice. You're just saying that justice exists and that that isn't necessarily yes. necessary moral truth. Oh, interesting. Okay, interesting. Yeah, I like that. And if you can establish that, that that can lead to some other logical conclusions about God, God or maybe a lawgiver or something like that. Yeah, yeah, I, I think it. And again, I haven't developed the argument full, like written it up. I'm still working on a cosmological thing, but I, I just think it's it's helpful if I can establish this. Uh, and when I write it up, um, it bypass it totally bypasses Sam Harris, all, all of that objective versus subjective. It's just irrelevant. We we've, we've got it with the. But but no, Dale, don't you have to? rely upon the fact that God that the Bible tells us that God is just in order to to know that. So if the Bible did not tell us that God is just, then you know, we wouldn't know, right? No. Um so so I know independently of the Bible, like a lot of atheists, Val doesn't use the Bible and he agreed uh, he would agree with certain moral principles or something like that. Um, and it's, it's because we're made in the image of God. We, we have a moral conscience. It's infected with sin. It's degraded, as Dan would say. So it's not perfect and that sort of thing. But it, I think it, it for most people, um, our moral conscience, at least on the level of moral principles, functions pretty pretty well in terms of these basic moral rules or principles like justice or truth, you know? Uh, well, but like, for example, our conscience uh, is, you know, if it's properly working, uh, it's supposed to tell us right and wrong, but I don't see where our conscience tells us anything about justice. To me, justice is something outside of the conscience um, holding people accountable and, you know, making sure that things are uh, in equilibrium. So to me, justice is not in, in the conscience. It's, it's outside of it. Do you, does your internal conscience attest to the truth of the proposition we should treat equals equally and unequals uh, unequally in the appro- whatever the appropriate way it is? Like, does that ring true to you in a properly basic way? I I mean, that we should treat equals equally and unequals unequally? Or or yeah. I'm not sure. Are you talking, who are the unequals? Are are unequals non-humans or are unequals... Yeah, it's a general principle, so it's not getting specific. So, for for just as a, as an example, there's there's this vague principle that applies necessarily. Then we apply those principles in applied ethics in different ways. So, for example, I I assume you treat your son, who's not an adult, uh, mm-hmm. differently than you do your husband. You, if you guys want to move, he has no say in the the matter. You know, you you take him with you. Sure. So we're treating an unequally in an appropriately unequal way in that sense. But that, but that's a question more of how you apply. Yeah. And there, obviously their differences can come up like crazy. Right. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I, I was just trying to argue for these basic. Well, let me, to me, 
Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Let me jump in because uh, we'll go ahead finish this thought, and then I'm going to jump in. And uh, you know, we're already two hours, two hour, two hours and a half into this Welcome conversation. To SNS, David R. Yeah, right. We're, we're so, just warming up. That's fine. Uh, but I, I have a feeling that I'll get a text message here of David Johnson saying, "Wrap it up," and you know. <laughs> it's fun. But, but let's do, and then we'll get on to the, to the last bit uh, after this thought, and then we'll close out after that. I, I was going to say just that um, in terms of the the equally and treating people equally, I don't think that's just with every little decision that is made. I think that it goes kind of like with the Declaration of Independence that we have here in America, that it's talking about and it's it's um, targeting the fundamental dignity of a person to not violate that. And so... You know, if I were to to do something to my son that violated his dignity, it doesn't matter that he is um, younger uh, than than I am and that I have power over him. You know, same thing like with the issue of abortion, uh, that fetus doesn't have any power. Um, but there's the question of are you going to acknowledge its fundamental dignity and worth? And and so uh, I I kind of see it from that respect. But but to me, justice is something uh, that's not so much with the conscience, but it, it's some it's some uh, buddy that is kind of in a judicial capacity. And of course, God is the supreme arbiter of everything. He's the one that will judge us. And so that's where the ultimate judge judgment is. That's where the ultimate justice is. And that's why he can give us the rule of love your enemies, even though they do things bad to us, we are still supposed to try and, and turn the other cheek. Um, and, and we can do that and we won't be suckers for doing that. Because those people who treat us badly, they will at some point be judged and they will get justice. We will all get justice. So we don't have to, uh, you know, uh, you know, God says judgment is his. So we don't have to do that. He does that. And in that you know, makes everything get squared away, I think, in terms of of uh, things balancing out and the scales of justice balancing out. Okay, cool. Yeah, thank, thank you guys for, for taking the time to, to answer that. I, I find your uh, perspectives fascinating. So yeah, I appreciate that. I'll turn it to David Russell to move on to the next thing. All right, so I, I think we came to an agreement that you know morality is not purely naturalistic, and we can't come to a satisfying conclusion from a naturalistic approach. I think that uh, metaethics from a naturalist approach presupposes a tele teleological realism. Um, you know, nature is goal-oriented; uh, it's infused with intentionality, just like the laws of physics have a goal and a direction that's ordered to. I think the moral realm also has that. Um, nature has tendencies. Um, it's part of a causal order. I think from my perspective, I would, like I did today, uh, 
defend moral realism, uh, not just from intuition, but from epistemic realism. And uh, the fact that we are, there is moral progress and convergence, our experience uh, and our moral disagreement, I think we all kind of came together on that. Uh, I don't think there's a big divide like it has been proposed in the previous debates. I think that we as a as a people do have an underlying idea and we are orientated to that way um so i mean that's where my moral moral argument would come in i think moral realism is true i think uh um i I would i would let me just pull this up i would i would say that moral morality is a rational enterprise i think uh you know moralism is true and i think that the disagreements among humans uh are too much for us to assume moral facts and duties are grounded at a human source. So I think that at the end of the day, moral facts and duties are grounded in a necessary rational cause, like like uh, Dale said, and I think we all agree on that. And I think we've done uh, a good job at, at kind of expressing that. I think the next part that we need to, to really just hone into is the big questions. And I know Teddy has some stuff she wanted to go over with uh, – uh, the aspect of abortion and slavery and so forth. So, Teddy, I'll, I'll turn it over to you on this aspect and I'll let you get that that part of the conversation started. Well, and I just you said something that um, I had a question about. If I can get that in just real quick, um, with moral realism, would you say that divine command theory? opposes it that it's different from it or a subset of you know non-natural moral realism i i think dale answered this earlier dale uh didn't you say something about those commands come from the aspect of god's nature i I think the best way i could probably articulate this is and dale you can you can jump in here too once once i'm finished uh that we need god's guidance in this aspect i think we need god's guidance we need that 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 perfect rational source to guide us into moral truth yeah uh, yeah perfect uh perfectly said yeah that's exactly what i believe um i mean that that's sort of a, a subject of moral epistemology how we come to have this moral knowledge and because we see through a glass darkly, right? We're even as Christians, we still struggle against the the flesh. We we don't know all the facts. We don't have a perfect moral functioning moral conscience. All of our faculties have been effect, adversely affected through sin, and you know through sanctification, we're we're slowly improving in that sort of thing over time. Um, but uh, yeah, I had a point I was going to say, and I just forgot. Yeah, yeah. So, but Dale, so, real quick, real quick. That to me uh, coheres and corresponds to reality, right? I mean, it, we see this in everything we do. We see the effects of this moral disagreement. We see the effects of sin in society. I think that that lends credence and makes it more probably true that Christianity is true. Yeah, uh, yeah. I need to hear more. Well, yeah. So it's it definitely coheres with the Christian claims that we live in a fallen world and and that sort of thing. I don't know if it, I I wouldn't say it proves that Christianity is is true that there are other religions that cause it. Well, yeah. That's why I said probably. You know that you know I'm not I'm not 
given like you know obviously certainty is is beyond us all we could all be butterflies dreaming of of being humans you know hey i i how did you know (laughs) (laughs) right (laughs) um but yeah one thing i wanted to back you up on divine revelation uh is, is a warranted way or means by which we come to be god can provide us with means to correct any deficiencies in our moral conscience i i can attest even right now as a christian and i know that from her show teddy is the same way I, I don't see anything inherently wrong uh with homosexuality given my own conscience um perhaps it's a little unnatural or something like that 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 would be if if i concluded christianity was false that would be my position you know go do your thing i don't understand it um but you know i'm i don't i wouldn't say you're immoral or something so it's through divine revelation that supplements and corrects my moral conscience that tells me yes it, it's been revealed to me that actually homosexuality is, is immoral and on that basis um i make that moral claim I, I believe that moral truth that homosexuality is a sin now um it's the same thing we do with anything else you know our cultures inform us or our, our parents I, I don't know the facts that touching a burner could could um hurt me my parents reveal to me the facts that well if you touch a burner a stove burner it'll burn you now i know it's it's not good to push my uh, little sis- two-year-old sister's head onto a stove burner when it's when it's hot or something like that so yeah we, we divine revelation plays the role of forming and in, in some cases uh it can correct our understanding of, of the moral realm because we we all have the some deficiencies um or lack of factual knowledge that could affect our judgments there Yes. So, Teddy, uh, with that, I'll allow you to move us on to that to those areas that you wanted to discuss. Well, um, so in terms of when I had brought up, it's a it's a good idea to talk about, uh, given that this is the big morality extravaganza, all of these shows kind of put together under the big top for the greatest show on earth. Um, I was thinking, you know, we would need to, uh, or not need to, but it would be good to address issues like abortion and slavery because they deal with uh, human rights and the importance of grounding one's morality or to see if there is a grounding for morality because if there isn't anything goes it's just one person's opinion over another person's opinion or uh people uh deciding whether they want to risk breaking laws and you know possibly having to deal with punishments but um, if, there, if there is no supreme being, if there's no God that is going to judge us one day and w- where there is either a grand reward or some form of uh, highly undesirable punishment, um, then, you know, it doesn't matter. And if, if it's all just about... Uh, 
morals or ways of living that people sort of figure out for themselves um, and, you know, different societies deciding, you know, how they want to live, um, you know, it, and, and, and I think that also just in terms of if you just look at evolution, it's, it's, a, it's more of a survival of the fittest. And, you know, what, what is there to encourage society to protecting uh, the weak, to helping the poor? Where is the evolutionary incentive for that? I mean, usually with evolution, it's, you know, uh, kill or be killed. And so uh, that's, that's what I think is so important about morality being grounded because when when people say that there is no objective morality then there are lots of people that would will think you know slavery is just fine you cannot say a person cannot say if they don't um believe in god that that slavery that abortion or whatever that it is wrong i mean they can give their opinion about it, but so what? Uh, you know, where is the uh, strength in that? Uh, and so that—that's just the, the big reason why I think that it's so important that there, that morality is grounded because it it can um, make even the most powerful person on earth want to comply with it because that they know that, that beyond this earth, there's someone that is even greater than they are. Okay. Yeah. Um, Dale, what are your thoughts there on that? Yeah. So, so these are issues of applied ethics, right? So now we're getting into the nitty gritty of how do we apply our moral philosophy to actual real world situations and make moral judgments or evaluations so for me it it the way when i'm properly assessing something i i prefer to do it in terms of those remember those three sources of moral disagreements i i actually assess things uh moral issues in terms of okay what what are the moral principles that are said to be violated because that's the definition of something being immoral to my mind you, you violate a moral principle um so that, for example, the principle of life preservation, um, obviously an abortion, you're, you're taking the life of an innocent baby. So it's said that you're violating that moral principle. Um, the, the, the next source of moral disagreement, OK, but what about the moral hierarchy? Are there any other moral principles involved that might overweigh or, or produce a greater good um, type situation where we, we have to it might be justified to take the life? and. You know, uh, some people might say, well, there's the principle of autonomy, the woman's right to have autonomy over her own body and stuff like that. And, and you know, people will differ over, well, is that right or, or not? Um, and then there's also factual differences that differentiate us. So is is the fetus inside the womb actually a, a human being, a living human being? Does it have a soul or not? Uh, and th this can color whether those princ the principle of life is being violated or not so yeah when it comes to abortion i would first okay let's establish the facts let's establish we've got our moral principles 
Um, is there a, a disagreement in terms of, you know, if somebody says, well, the principle of autonomy is more important than the principle of life preservation in this case, I would say, really? Okay, well, what about after the child is born? Can, can I, I mean, that little bundle of joy, that, you know, two-year-old bundle of joy, he's dependent, he's infringing on the woman's autonomy. Can the woman just decide to kill the baby? Obviously, none of us would say that's moral. So what? Well, what's the... What's the difference then if, if it's a human being who cares if it's inside the womb and dependent on you versus outside the womb and dependent on you and, and you know, you instead of going clubbing, you've got to work and earn money to feed the baby and stuff like that. So I would address it that way. Um, and yeah, as, as I said, then there's it's ultimately going to go. I think most people nine out of ten, it, it comes down to the factual differences. People don't believe that that is that fetus is a human life. And, uh, on that basis, I, I would just say, well, my my main argument for that is that we got to err on the side of caution. You, even if I can't prove it has a soul or is a human life or something like that, you can't prove that it doesn't. And I mean, is the cost so great? I, I wouldn't want to be responsible for killing all of these innocent babies inside the womb and then find out after the fact, oh my gosh, it, it was a human. It, it Souls are real after the fact. I, I think we should err on the side of caution. And that's how I would try to come across to, to atheists who might disagree on the facts with me there. Because one um, of the things is that you know that it's, it's human because the DNA shows that it's human. It's not a monkey. But um, I think with a lot of uh, people, it ends up um, basically boiling down to the autonomy issue. It's my body. I can do whatever I want with it. And, um, you know, what if, what if someone is a conjoined twin? And let's say they're adult conjoined twins and they're joined, you know, uh, either by the head or the chest, in so, they're joined in some way that it would be possible to, you know, for, for one of the twins to say, you know what, I don't want to live this way with somebody attached to me. I think I want, since I'm the one that has, that can survive, uh, you know, maybe the heart and the brain are more on one twin's side of the body as opposed to the other, but they're both, you know, healthy and uh, thriving and, and doing well as, as adults. Uh, but it's like, you know, but I just want my life to be better. I want my independence and I can do it because I've got the side that's got the brain and the heart and I can just, you know, uh, and so then they just go to a doctor. It's like, hey, I just want to be separated from my sister here. And the doctor says, oh, but she'll die. And, and then the person says, I don't care. I want my life. I want to live my best possible life and get rid of her. She's, you know, she's sponging off of me. You know, uh, she's, uh, I'm the one that's got the, the heart and I'm the one that's got the brain. And uh, she's just this attachment of cells for the most part. So get rid of her. So, you know, when we put it that way, some people might be thinking of it possibly a little bit different. And so, you know, just because somebody is attached to you 
doesn't mean that their inherent value, at least not in the eyes of God. And, um, you know, if you're a Christian, you want to, to try to please God and to, uh, to follow his rules. And so that for the Christian or for the God fearing person, uh, and you know what, that's something that people shy away from the idea that we need to fear God. And, uh, you know, that's not very politically correct to say, but it is in the Bible in tons of places. And there's a reason for it. God is a loving God, but the fear, uh, to fear and respect him because of, you know, there's the whole punishment or reward situation going on. The, the fear is, I think they're for the purpose of motivating us to do good. But when I, when I, uh, let's say I'm in some sort of situation where I'm trying to think, you know, do I really want to do something to help somebody, you know, maybe, yeah, maybe I'm just really not in the mood to do it right at the moment, but somebody needs my help. And, um, and so my own desires are that, you know, I've got something else I want to do, but then I see this poor person that really needs my help. Um, in those situations, if I wasn't trying to follow what God wants and God commands of us, I would just do what I wanted. And um, so, it, so the, the fear and the respect helps us to conform our behavior to his rules. And I'm not afraid, I'm not shy about saying that. And I, and I think a lot of people are because they don't want to turn people off. But you know what? You don't come to Christianity because it's Disneyland. You, you have to decide, is it true or is it not? And if it is true, then you do your best to figure out what the rules are what is um, required of you, and and then you follow. And it's not about, oh, do I approve of this? Do I like this? That's not what it's about. Uh, you know. It- yeah, yeah, I hear you there, Teddy. Uh, I, you know, I, I think the only pushback I would give is on the aspect of the, the rules and punishment and stuff like that. You see, I, I really try to take the Matthew chapter 5 approach in the Beatitudes, right? So uh, when, you, when, when you realize that you're nothing without God, you know, like the prodigal, he, he's in the muck, right? He, he, he's like, I got to go back home, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, that's, that's what it means to be poor in spirit. So when we're poor in spirit and we take that first step, you know, we get to that second Beatitude. We mourn. As God mourns, you know, we mourn sin. We see it in the world. We mourn it. All of it is a relationship type thing. Instead of it being like an idea of rules and regulations and God's rules and this and that, I don't look at it like that. I look at it as more starting to restore that reflective image that that we lost in the fall. You know, we're starting to conform more towards what he wants and what he desires because that was our original intended purpose was to be like him, you know, and to do and to live in the purpose that he gave us. And when when we do that, we begin to start reflecting him more. And those 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 rules or whatever you want to call them, they're more of an outpouring of 
you know, him being in us. And yeah, so it's not more like we fear to do it, but we desire to be more like and we desire to those those things. Anyways, that, that's yeah. the only pushback I would give. I would agree with that, too. Like, I think that one of the big problems with the way Christians look at ethics in general is they look at it primarily through the rules lens. Um, there's these this principle versus this principle, and they're in conflict. What do we do about it? Right. So that that is, in my opinion, that's a rules lens, rules oriented lens. And I think one of the things that scripture teaches, especially in the Sermon on the Mount, is that Jesus is saying, okay, these rules, yeah, they're they're true, but they are really a formula a human formulation of what God truly is, and they don't fully capture all of it. So there's there's going to be conflict because of that. And I think like one of the things, like Jesus says, or they, people ask Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he's born lame or born blind or forgot what it is. He's like, neither. You know? And Jesus consistently teaches like that. It's like your conflict in your brain is not really a conflict in God's brain. right? And then the second thing is that when we have these moral conflicts, we often put it on an individual to resolve the conflict. We're like, okay, well, a woman, she she wants to get an abortion, or so she has to either take the life of her baby, or she has to like give up her own autonomy and her own life, and that's not like a conflict there, right? Or give up her own rights to her body. That's and like it's a moral really conflict just for there, nine right? months or less. You know, it's not like it's even permanent. Yeah. Okay. So you can yeah. Give so the child up for adoption. So there are other other ways that that can be resolved, but it's not always that woman who has to resolve the issue. Sometimes it's we can say that the society put her in that situation, and it's it's the society's responsibility to resolve the issue. And if Wait society does not, the society put a woman in the situation if she's pregnant. I'm saying that. There are cultural facts. There are cultural different things that put people in different situations, right? And I'm not saying it's just the society. Sometimes it may be uh, spiritual forces or demonic force that have put people in certain situations. And I think God says, yeah, this person has individual responsibility. They need to do the right thing. But I don't think that scripture teaches its only individual responsibility. I think God says that he takes responsibility. For a lot of it, he takes the responsibility to defeat evil. Ultimately, he's like, if there's the demonic forces, I'm sending Jesus. He's going to die on the cross for, and he's going to defeat evil. He's going to defeat evil ultimately on the cross because he's taking responsibility to remove those things. So, well, all I'm saying is that it's not just individuals. I, I think there's definitely individual responsibility. I think there's definitely. But are like, you saying that God? Because I, 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 I don't think that you are. Maybe I'm. I don't. I, I need clarification on this. Sure, I don't think sure. you're saying this because I don't think that I don't think you're saying this. But just to be clear, you're not saying that God has even the slightest bit of responsibility about someone committing sin or being um, pregnant out of wedlock or whatever. Are, are you saying? I'm saying that I'm not saying he's at fault for it. See, that's the thing. I think in Western society, when we say the word responsibility, we mean fault. Though those two things are equated, but I, that's not—that's not. I don't think scripturally that's what it means. So responsibility, the way I'm phrasing, it is who is going to fix this? Who's going to take? Who's going to say I'm going to stand up? I'm going to take leadership and I'm going to fix this. That's responsibility to me. I'm not saying that that person's at fault. 
or that they did the wrong. So I'm not saying God did the wrong, obviously. But I am saying that he's like saying, you know what? You may have done the wrong. Society may have done the wrong. Satan may have done the wrong. But I'm going to be the one who's going to resolve this. It's not going to be up to you because I know you don't have the power to do so. The woman. I'm sorry. Go Go ahead. So like the woman in that in that situation, she has a conflict between the rights to her own body versus the rights, the baby's rights to live. Right. That is a conflict. Who is responsible to resolve that conflict in Western society? We say the woman is responsible. She's either doing right or wrong. But I'm saying I don't think that's the way God sees it necessarily. I think sometimes he's say, hey, that situation, Satan put her there. Or in that situation, society has put her there. I think she, God does make give her some individual responsibility. And there is definitely a role of repentance there. I'm not saying that that's not involved. But I'm saying that we need to take into consideration a much wider uh, view of it besides just individual responsibility. It's not just individual responsibility. There's much more to it than that. I, I, uh, I disagree with that um, very strongly. I, th- I think that... Uh, you know, there are all sorts of situations and there are a lot of people that um, have advantages and there are a lot of people that have disadvantages. And, you know, so I recognize that. But we all make choices and I'm, I believe in free will. And, uh, you know, when somebody chooses to have sex, that is their uh, freedom of choice. That is the right to choose whether to have sex or not. Uh, rape, that, that is, you know, obviously somebody's, you know, forcing that on you. Uh, and as I've mentioned before, that does not alter my view in terms of the sanctity of life. I just, I view that as a crime has been committed on somebody Uh, perpetrated against somebody. And many times when people are the victims of crime, they suffer and they have heartache and emotional turmoil. And while I, um, my heart goes out to any woman that has gotten impregnated by their rapist, you know, I, one can only imagine how horrible that would be. Um, but it doesn't correct the horror of it to then perpetrate another crime onto someone else. And so, uh, but aside from that, uh, I just think, you know, we make our, our choices and sometimes it can be really, really hard to do the right thing. And I disagree with Sam Harris's notion about, um, well-being kind of being what is good because many times doing what is good, doing what is right can be very hard and it can frequently involve uh, the opposite of giving us a sense of well-being. It can be really difficult when when our brave uh, men and women in the military uh when they are at war and they are defending us and, and protecting us, uh, 
Gosh, I mean, when you think about what they go through, just how heavy it is, those backpacks with all the gear that they have to uh, carry, how hot, you know, many times they're in places that are miserable and hot. And but they are doing something that they think is right, yet their well-being. Oh, I mean, they feel horrible. Uh, and 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 that's why a lot of times we elevate those and honor those people who serve society by doing things um, that are sacrificial to their own well-being for for others. But um, but I just think, you know, personal responsibility uh, and sometimes it's harder for some people than others because of the situations that they are in. I acknowledge that. Um, and I think we as a society need to uh to help those who, um, you know, who find themselves pregnant and if they're, if, you know, they're struggling with finances and things, give supports. Um, but I, I do, I do believe in, in personal responsibility and, and, you know, we have the power to make our choices and God gives us that power. And, and, uh, it's a very important uh, power and, and society can can influence us, but ultimately we have to make the choice. But are you saying? Because I'm not saying that there's no personal responsibility involved, right? I'm just saying that there is a lot more to that. Are you saying that it's primarily or only personal responsibility? Yeah, I pretty much. Um, Okay. I mean, I'm, well, I'm trying to. I'm trying to even think of how I would. Uh, I'm trying to think of even an exception to that. I'm not readily coming up with an exception to the rule. I mean, if somebody decides to, you know, with regard to abortion and pregnancy and all that, uh, if somebody decides to have sex. That is their choice. You know, if if you're in, if some, if a woman is in a position where it would. Um, devastate her life to be pregnant, then well, what she has to do if she wants to have sex is she needs to decide if she, you know, getting on birth control and uh, deciding if she is willing to take the ever so slight risk that the birth control won't work, um, which, you know, that's what most women do. Uh, or if she can't even afford to take even the slightest risk, then don't have sex. And, you know, Darren, is, when we were having our debate, he was uh, talking out of both sides of his mouth. One minute he was like, oh, well, God put desires in us. And, you know, like we're animals that we have to cave in to our desires. But then when it came to things like murder... Oh, we we suddenly can control it. And, you know, it's like that's awfully convenient. Um, you know, he's picking and choosing what to use free will with. And it's either you have it or you don't. And well, if you don't have it, then murderers and everybody else, we can't um, look down on them. We can't punish i mean why should we punish them if they are just doing what they have no choice 
to do. Well, I don't. I don't think that it's, it's. They don't have any choice. So it's not like it. I like. I again. I said, it's not that there's like a no personal responsibility. I think there is definitely is personal responsibility, mm-hmm. but I think it's simplistic to say that it's only personal responsibility. And I, I, I really look at scripture to look at this, and I think that the way that scripture characterizes it never. I mean, that's one of the big things I think that modern Western Christians deviate from scripture is they don't see the corporate, they don't see corporate responsibility. They don't see social responsibility. They don't see any of that stuff. Like, because, and, you know, studies have shown Americans are probably the most individualistic culture in the world. And because of that, we can only, we read the Bible, we, we don't see any of that stuff. But the Bible's full of that stuff. The Bible's full of it talks about spiritual forces, powers, authorities, right? In Ephesians, it talks all when it talks about punishment. It doesn't even often they don't just punish the person who did the wrong; they punish their entire family. And it's like, what? We don't understand that because we're so individualistic. Even when people accept Christ, it goes like, oh, so and so accepted Christ, him and his household. And we don't understand that. How can one person accept Christ for their entire household? We don't understand See, that. I don't, I don't know that I believe that you can do that. I think that is also an individual choice. And we don't have um, where. Well, what I'm how, saying is that there's examples in scripture that, that kind of contradict what you're saying Mm -hmm. that's what i'm saying like you could say yeah you don't believe that but i think scripture teaches the opposite of what you're saying that's what i'm saying are you talking about like with the baptism example where they say that perhaps a whole household can be baptized if one person is baptized i'm not again i'm not coming up with a principle out of it i'm saying that that is how the world works that's how the universe works is that there are social god treats people as a social social group that there's a lot of community oriented in Ephesians chapter 2 he says that he made the two one and then reconciled them to god so our reconciliation and our, our relationship with god is not individual actually it's being part of his people and as one people we're reconciled to god but so we don't even have our individual reconciliation to god we have reconciliation to god as a people and i think that part of scripture is completely ignored in a lot of these ethical discussions so and i think saying that can... society shouldn't do something that god is going to judge each individual so one is going to be accountable for one's own actions and uh, And sure, part of being moral is to help others. So in that respect, you know, yes, I do. It's not that I'm trying to say that as Christians, I mean, absolutely, as Christians, we should help others. But when a person makes a moral decision, they are the ones, to me, in toto, making that decision and we can have all sorts of pressures on us and um you know and in many ways it's always the it it almost seems to have a greater value when somebody does the right thing when it's hard to do the right thing yeah you know uh, just to jump in here because i'm going to move us along a little bit um because uh, there's a question David Johnson asked, and I'm going to propose it to you guys, all of you guys. Um, but the first thing I want to say is, is on the issues of of uh, um, where it co- talks about community versus the individual, 
I think one has to, when they're reading the Bible, they have to understand the culture of the time as well. Um, and, you know, that's to Dan's credit there. We do have to understand that. And to say it's one or the other, I don't think that's the case. I think the context determines, and the social and the cultural context determine uh, when God is speaking about just community versus individualism. So I think, you know, we have to consider that. I don't think we have time to go down that route. Um, but I, I just want, okay, so. David Johnson asked uh, – he asked a, a question a minute ago if we all agree with exceptions due to rape and incest no. on abortion. Nope. So – well, that <laughs> – <laughs> so I, I, no, I think we I, – I don't think there are exceptions in the case of rape. Uh, I'll take Dale's position um, on this. Uh, he, he responded to David that rape – was not an exemption. Only if the life of the mother is life, at risk can one afford yep. a baby. And yep. and I I tend life to agree with that too. Um, but let's 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 give Dale a chance because I just spoke for him. Oh. <laughs> so Dale, if you could just uh, flesh that out just a little bit for David Johnson. Yeah. So you, there's no need. You you did beautifully. You're you're a better me than I am. So. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, but I don't yeah. think so, man. You're my you're my arbiter, man. I, I rely on you a lot. So, oh really? Oh, <laughs> in this in this uh, in this debate so far. <laughs> oh, awesome! Yeah, that thank you. That means a lot to me. So, so yeah, I I definitely. Um, I, so so again, my my view uh, is about moral principles, and they are exceptionless. Uh, but there can be exemptions. The, these moral rules uh, are only prima fa- prima facie. Um, rules right um so there can be exemptions obviously if it's the same principle at play if the mother's life is at risk um and it it's more likely that uh, both are going to die then yeah you you kill the baby to save to save the woman's life um I, i think that's that's clear so but i don't think rape justifies killing the, the baby there are other options uh you know get my my own uh mom for example what got pregnant very early she wasn't able to take care of the the child and she gave it up for adoption afterwards when she was a, a teenager there so you know that that's the option you should go for um incest again i i think that if 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 it's, I don't know, if they can find out that the child's not viable or something, I, I don't know. I, I'm skeptical of that. I would probably say it depends on the specifics, but mostly, I mean, ch- children of incest can can live. They're viable. They maybe got like an extra finger or something like that. So I, I think I, they're concerned more about just how horrific it would be for an incest victim to to carry the child. Um, you know, to full term. I think that's usually when I hear, yeah, just the psychological harm to the child. But, but, you know, if we're, if we're honest, that child's already got a tremendous amount of psychological harm and somebody's going to say, oh, well, you're just 
adding to it by having them carry the baby, uh, you know, that's going to be a daily reminder. Well, you know what? That child's already got a daily reminder. You don't, kids who have been through that, they carry that for the rest of their lives. That's not going away. And, and then you've got the issue of, are you then going to add? So, you know, they're, they're a victim uh, from that horrible crime, but then they will have uh, some blood on their hand, not some blood, they will have blood on their hands if they terminate their pregnancy, and then presumably they're going to have guilt over that. So are we going to correct for that nine months of, uh, and and I'm not denying that that's not going to be an additional hardship. Of course it is. But at least they will have a clear conscience and they can give the child up for adoption. But I mean, sometimes people are the victims of crimes and and there is terrible pain that is inflicted upon them just because there is a way through abortion with certain types of crime like rape to where you can get a little bit of a uh, somewhat of an easy fix to get rid of some pain by eliminating the child, you're not going to eliminate the guilt that, that, you know, a lot of these women are haunted by for the rest of their lives. I often, I often ask a question when dealing with abortion that when is it ever okay to kill an innocent human being, you know, or an innocent child, you know, I also use the, that whole sled approach that, uh, Coco gives, um, and uh, I, I don't know. Uh, I can't remember his name right now, but um, you know, I, I don't think it's right to discriminate against somebody because of their location, their size, or level of development. So, you know, I, I just I, I I hold to that pretty well. And I often, you know, I was just in a discussion about this the other night, and people asked me to provide a scientific argument uh, on where life. Our human development began, and I was like, "Well, I mean, here's the here's the uh, here's the, the 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 books and stuff to read, and here's what embryologists say, and and you know, of course, it, it comes down to a volitional issue, I think, at the end because they rejected it anyway. <laughs> you know, yet they're going to get on me or get on not me, but other people about denying science when it comes to climate change. So it's like, you know, there's no consistency there." Um, so I think there's actually more disagreement on the other side than, than there is on our side, you know? So, um, when it comes down to it, I, I, I think that, no, I, I don't think rape is, is a justification for killing an innocent child. Um, we do know human development be, begins at conception and it ends at death. I mean, it's just that simple. Um, uh, you know, there's, there's just a lot to it. And, and I sympathize with people that have gone through horrific experience experiences and you know I, there's sometimes all we can do as christians is sit in the ashes with them and, yes. and wait to wait until they're ready to talk you know and then just hear them out it, it, you know when you're dealing with these problems of emotional suffering and stuff like that you know it's not wise to talk all the time you know it's not wise to give an answer now i think it's important that we have an answer you know um and we do i, I think christians can provide a great answer but sometimes all that person needs is you just to be there. <laughs> so um, in that, I, I think that's where I would stand. Uh, Dan, you, you're the last one to comment on this one, and then we're going to wrap up. Can I, can I just say one quick thing? I've been yes. waiting for like 
Okay, go ahead. Long quick. Time. But I, I just very quick. I just wanted to acknowledge something that Dan said, and it, it's uh, probably my fault um, because it, I, I've talked a lot about deontological ethics and moral rules and principles, which I, I am. Um, but I want to acknowledge that that's that's an incomplete picture. You, you also need there are two fundamental perspectives on morals. There's the deontological, and there's also teleological perspectives. You know, the end goal, the purpose for which you're uh, following these moral rules, and and that's why I I think you need both and to have a complete moral theory. So the moral, you know, there's a famous quote that I I read in in the show with Val where I said, look. Um, you know, so so I com- combine virtue ethics, which is sort of where God has designed us to have a certain fit character to enjoy, you know, His design for us providentially by following the moral rules. We develop this virtuous character to fulfill our design plan, so to speak, or, um, that God has has created human beings for. And the the famous quote there is, "Look, m- moral rules. Uh, sorry, um, so virtues, char- uh, virtuous character, the end goal." without moral rules is blind. You need the moral rules to provide guidance to, to gain this and beneficial consequence of fulfilling your design plan. But by the same token, um, moral rules without the, the virtues uh, is is motivationally impotent. We just have no motivation to follow these these rules in themselves, like what's, what's the point kind of thing. So I, I think it needs to be a both and. So I just wanted to clarify that for, for Dan. But there's awesome. punishment. Awesome. That provides motivation. There's the Whoa. prospect of punishment. <laughs> so, I, so I'm not going to debate you. Yeah, I'll, I'll yeah, that's, that's a whole other conundrum we have, we would have to flesh out. Uh, Dan, uh, I'll let you conclude this 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 section here, and then I'm gonna end us. Yeah, I would say, um, I, yeah, I would I agree with um, um, what was it? Was it David? Who you uh, with the virtue ethics and the um, the and the ontological? Like, I think there definitely needs to be a, a balance between both. I do generally side more in the virtue ethics side. Um, I, I kind of see Jesus's um, Sermon on the Mount more on that end, um, but I do think that there needs to be rules and guidance for that. But I do kind of see them more as that, um, which is basically just like, hey, the, like if we take like the, what David Johnson's asking, is there an exception when that question presupposes that there's these rules, and if you violate these rules, you will, you know, you'll have punishment or you whatever, right? And then, so can we grant an exception so that this person doesn't get punished? You know, that's kind of like the framework of like an exception question like that. And I don't really like that framework. Um, and the reason is because like everyone's already getting punished. But a lot, but God allows us to um, engage in self-defense because that's not murder, it, it, yeah, yeah. It, I'm not saying it may be that killing, but it's not murder. I'm not saying what God allow. Like, I think that there's what God allows, and then there's also the ultimate like goal of what God desires, right? So obviously, there's a lot of things that sin has corrupted, and we have to do the best that we can in the midst of like this corrupted world. And that's why there's so many conflicts with the mor- morals, right? It's because mm-hmm. these good things are just messed up, and the way they can't, re- they don't have good resolutions because ultimately sin is on top of it and has corrupted all of it, right? So we have to mm-hmm. do the best we can. And so I would say, hopefully, the best we can. I would, I would agree with you guys. Like the best you can do may, is probably 
for that individual woman is to have the baby in both cases. But at the same time, I'm not going to say, hey, you didn't have the baby. You aborted the baby. Therefore, I think you're condemned. I'm not going to say that, you know, because I don't view it in terms of that strict. This is the rule. You do this. And these are the exceptions, that type of framework. I just think, okay, they're all broken. She's destroyed already. She's messed up. She's been raped already. Like, this is like crazy. She's already suffering the punishments of it. And she's just doing the best that she can. And maybe it's not the exact, like, from my perspective, maybe it would be better for her to keep it. But maybe it's her, her, her situation, her side. I, I can't judge that, you know, because the entire situation's already broken. The entire situation's already sinful. So I wouldn't put that on her. I wouldn't put and that. I, I would, go ahead. And, and I just want to say, you know, uh, because I don't think you were meaning to imply that, but just so that there's clarification, you know, just because somebody's had an abortion doesn't condemn them to hell. I mean, they can repent, ask for forgiveness, and, you know, then they're going to be forgiven. And, and, you know, my understanding is that... uh, even when we are forgiven during judgment, we are still going to be judged by what we do on this earth. So it's not like the slate has just been erased to where God has no memory of it. My, but my understanding that, that, you know, you can still achieve salvation, but uh, then there are the rewards in heaven are not the same for everyone. Yeah. 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 I'm not saying. Yeah. Uh, I, and no, I, I think that's, that's good. Good. I think we've, we've hammered this topic uh, long enough. Uh, I think, uh, yeah. I, uh, just to conclude here, we have covered a lot of ground. I think we've also covered uh, a big issue here and I think we've related it to that that a theological issue, the theological issue, which is sin, right? So I, I think we've covered all that in this time. Um, uh, of course, we didn't get to David's uh, favorite topic of homosexuality. I'm sorry, David. But uh, yeah, so unlike uh, David's famous, this is the skeptic's view. Well, this is the Christian's view on these topics. I want to thank each of you for being here. Uh, again, just, uh, if you guys want to, want to say, Hey, this is where you can find me. I do this writing here, Dale. I know you have a, have, uh, some stuff that, you know, you can put out there. Uh, where can we find you? You can find me on proselytize or apostatize and on skeptics and seekers. So I'm going to be helping David out with some stuff. Uh, you can, again, like I said, proselytize or apostatize or the Virginia apologetics union, um, you find that on Facebook. That's a Facebook page. As long we also have a Facebook page for proselytize or apostatize, and our YouTube channel, proselytize or apostatize. Dale, awesome. Yeah, uh, yeah. So it's been a, a, a great talk. I, I think it's been great getting the different perspectives, and hopefully, it's um, beneficial for for the atheists because yeah, we had some disagreements, but we actually worked it out, and and we su- we realized we were supplementing each other, or maybe we had a, a misunderstanding, and then when we clarified it. We realize there's not such a disagreement between us after all. So it's actually been a good instructive lesson there um, as to how to go about uh, working together as Christians to come to the truth on these important things. Um, In terms of my website, uh, so I'm at uh, Real Seeker Ministries. 
uh, sorry, realseekerministry.wordpress.com uh, for my blogs um, and or search on YouTube or, or Anchor for Real Seekers uh, podcast there. All right. Uh, for me, I'm Daniel, the Bible nerd, I guess. <laughs> I'm like, I appreciate you guys like just uh, talking to me, educating me a little bit on the philosophy side of stuff. And um, yeah, really enjoyed the conversation. You can find me on uh, YouTube. I have a YouTube channel, Daniel, the Bible nerd. Um, or I guess on social media, Twitter, Instagram, Dan- at Daniel Bible nerd. And I can be found at uh, probably skeptics and seekers uh, in the comments section. We'll see you later. <laughs>